because that's what we do here. We hit record and then we warm up a little bit with our voice warm ups. I don't even know what voice I'm doing right now. Well, I will tell you this much, comrade. You sound very, very muppety. Muppety. As well. Okay. Yes. Um, Ooh, you, Mayo. <laughs> we uh, we got a second round of movies from 1985. I've forgotten what we're supposed to do, so you're gonna guide me because I'm a fucking migraine. It's been a long day. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> ain't no worries, man. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I tried to hold it together because the other what we we're supposed to record last night. I was just like, I'm pooped. I'm an old man. And I got nothing. I had a lot of caffeine today, and the caffeine's starting to crash, so my headache's kicking in. Oh yeah, no, oh, it could do that to you. Oish. I tell you, that's what. But honestly, when it comes to coffee, I always take it black. Holy shit! I think a fucking earthquake just happened. <laughs> Did you hear that? Was there? A, I, there was a thudding. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, is it raining? No, no. Is it no, a T Rex? No, it's just is it a freaking T Rex? Yeah, it's a fucking girl. Just the kids upstairs. Oh. By the way, I got this thing oh. to help with my. I have jaw tension and like I'm always squinting all the time. Um, so I got this uh, thing called, um, this is not a commercial sponsorship, so I'm not going to say the name, but it's like one of those hand vibrator things. It looks like a fucking Uzi. But um, wow. turns out if you put it right on bone, it hurts like a son of a bitch. It's got to be on muscle because, can, <laughs> can, can you hear it at all? Yeah, I can hear you. This thing, oh, good lord. It? Yeah. Let's say this, your skull. Ow, 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 ow. Oh lord. <laughs> ow, I can turn it off. Oh, turn off! I know. Hit the button. It's like it's like a it's like a jackhammer. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it it looks like it looks like a little Uzi, and the thing just goes like hammers away at your muscles. But do not use it on bone for God's sakes. Oh no, the Lord! Oh, happy day! The guy who should be president is going to be there in two really long two months. This is going to be the worst fucking two months. I'm so happy that he got elected. I'm not happy that uh, 70 million people said, yeah, I want more of this bullshit. They fucking doubled yeah, down. Yeah, no. White people. Yeah, for real. What the fuck? I can only, ha- I can only trust half of you. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I'm not even trying. I can only trust like less than half. Ugh. Like for me, honestly. <sighs> That's going to be a long anyway. time for us too much. So let's talk about fun stuff. <laughs> um, yes, just to let yes, you know, yes. we only have two episodes left in a 1985 season. I'm going to take a hiatus for a little while. I need a break. Uh, probably take it off till after Christmas uh, or New Year's. Yeah. Because so. um, you and I, we get crazy around this time of year with our businesses. Well, not, not that we're businessmen. Ah. We're big for moguls, yeah. They get on the cigars, fat cats, yeah. It's industry, oh. ah. We're now $5 million richer. Okay, I, I'm gonna go heat up a bagel and have sex with. Them. I invested all my <laughs> hey. money into Atari. Yes, it's gonna be a hot commodity. Uh, oh, they went out of business again. Shut up a bitch. <laughs> Way to go! Way to go, Ted Turner. Fucking what? No, no, he had Ted Turner had nothing to do with Atari. Um, all right, Time <laughs> Warner did own it. I forgot about that. Okay, but no, hold on a second. Let's talk about this real quick. There's an Atari system that's supposed to come out and an Amico system from a television. I think the Atari one is eventually going to come out. They're, they're further along. But that Amico, it ain't ever coming out, kids. Sorry about your Kickstarter money thrown down in the toilet. <laughs> eh, it happens. Every time there's a game system run, though, there's always some dummies that decide, hey, we're going to try to compete with PS5. And the what, the what the fuck's the new Xbox called? Xbox. Xbox One X. Okay, what was the last one called? No, wait, no. I can't. I can't remember. There's the Nintendo Switch. Okay, no, no, hold on. It went from Xbox 
to Xbox 360 to what? What was after Xbox 360? Xbox One. Xbox One. So you're seriously telling me the next one's called Xbox Xbox One X? I think so, yeah. Okay, based on that that stupidity alone, go ahead and just buy a PlayStation 5 because Xbox needs to be punished for stupid fucking names. <laughs> mm-hmm. But every time this, I mean, this happens, they come out and people are like, "Oh, well, they're all going to be sold out. People are going to be hungry for a game system. Let's put out a lower rent version." Nobody's going to buy the Nico. Nobody. I mean, everybody remembers the Ouya. No one fucking bought that thing. Come What's on. an Ouya? Ouya. We had it even at our store when I worked with you. Uh, Ouya was a Android-based box that was supposed to be like an emulator, but also you could download uh, web games. And they were going to work with Steam, I think. I think there was supposed to be a Steam box. Did that ever come out? All these, whatever, this happens every five, six years where the big guys are coming out and the little guys decide they're going to compete and they never fucking matter. No, they can't, uh, sadly. And it seems to me like PS5 is the one to go. Sony definitely um, likes definitely likes to push the envelope further, which is what they need to do with their gaming systems. Yeah. Microsoft just buys these de- developers and just, you know, tries to play it safe. And it's like, it's oh, the Disney, we'll get Xbox is doing the Disney thing where they don't develop their own product. They buy it from someone else, but when that exhausts itself, guess what? There's nothing else on the table. Exactly. I mean, the first Xbox was great. I mean, you know, there's the ones who started Xbox Live. Halo was very innovative. You know, they liked to, you know, break ground. Yeah, they were risky. And Nintendo had a huge comeback. And guess what? It's the 35th anniversary of Nintendo debuting in America. That is 1985. To circle it back again so we can stay on course. Stay on course. Stay on course. Um, It's 1985. Movies Part 2. What are we starting with? Uh, Let's start with this. I mean, since I I was going along with the Russian accent, um, I figured let's go with Spies Like Us. Starring Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase, two of the biggest comedic powerhouses. Oh my god, I saw this in theaters, and the only thing I remember from it is walking out and seeing a post for Psycho 3, and for some reason it scared the shit out of me, and I don't know why. <laughs> You're just holding keys, that's it. Just Norm Bates holding keys, and I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, just the concept of this movie was kind of mind-boggling. I'm like, oh my god. Uh, it's an Aykroyd I mean, script, right? Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, it starts off, you know, Pentagon's just, like, kind of keeping surveillance on these, like, Russian missiles, and they're going to be sending in a, co- a covert team to knock it out. But at the same time, they're sending in a dummy team of, like, two of the worst candidates, uh, you know, as a distraction. And, <laughs> they, they of course, any, end up getting Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd because they're... <laughs> They were just absolutely ridiculous. I love watching them. Cause, well, see, Dan Aykroyd's always good as playing the straight man. And I think he, when he's on his own, it rarely ever works. He has to have a strong co-lead with him. And uh, well, it started with Blues Brothers, and then uh, he made a mistake making Dr. Detroit. Neighbors, of course, kind of bomb, but I thought it was kind of fun. Uh, but his big ones are Trading Places, Spies Like Us, Great Outdoors. Whenever he's with a good co-lead is when uh, Dragnet... Um, Ghostbusters, of course, yeah. but when he goes on his own, it doesn't work. So it always seems like it's best during this time period for him to have a good uh, co-star, necessarily bigger. And, and of course, uh, one of the not ready for the one of the original not ready for primetime players to co-star with him, Chevy Chase. Yeah. And uh, 
just as soon as you see Chevy Chase, you know, like, you know, they're trying to prep for that big old, like, exam to get, you know, higher up and, uh, you know, uh, the government workforce. He's like, oh yeah, no, I, I've got it this time. I was, I've already taken it three times before. I'll get it this time. <laughs> like, not even giving a shit about it. And then, he, but then on testing day, he comes in with an eye patch and a prosthetic arm. <laughs> and he's pulling the paper out of his mouth, and he snaps under the pressure. <laughs> oh God, I can't take it anymore. Give your answers. What are your answers? Okay, no, no, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Falls the ground and starts taking it. Frank Oz is the 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 guy giving the exam. Did you know that? Yes. Yes, he was the he was the um, exam overseer, and he was just like uh, unveiling all the security cameras <laughs> to keep an eye on Chevy Chase. And Dan Ecker was just like subtly helping him. He, at first, he's hesitant, like saying, "Come on, man, stop." <laughs> and well, <then> he... <laughs> yeah, and this is necessary for John Landis. He needed this hit because Twilight Zone was a disaster for him um, when it came Which to. Was a shame. You know, I mean, the movie was a hit, but for him, he he went to court. He almost went to jail for uh, accidental murder, um, oh. and and a bunch of people vouched from whatever and said he's just a very. Uh, I, I've heard he's not a very careful filmmaker. He's always looking for the most extreme, realistic, and it can cause serious problems, obviously, because Vic Morrow and two kids were killed in that accident, and he was oh. unhirable. He did a little low budget movie with Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer called Into the Night right before this, and that bombed. And Spies Like Us saved him. And, of course, after that, it was uh, Three Amigos, Coming to America. And then the 90s wasn't too far, <laughs> too good for him. Sadly, no. But, man, he was he was great in the late 70s and 80s. Yeah. But Oh, um, man, but, yeah. This is loaded with cameos. I mean, we, we just, every single scene seems to have, oh, like, I know that guy. Absolutely. Or, you know, yeah, we got Bob Hope. We have, uh, oh, yeah. in the Doctor scene alone, we have Terry Gilliam. We have Ray Harryhausen. Uh, later, we have... Um, uh, when they're entering the base, um, you know the two older guys, uh, Bruce. Oh shit, he played Willard. I can't remember Bruce Davison, who was uh, the senator in X Men. Um, him and his partner are coming up to this building or whatever, and there's a guy with a machine gun, and it is uh, Sam Raimi. Yeah, that's right. I I, re- I realized that. I was like, wait, oh my god, no way. Why did he look so familiar? Then I'm like, oh shoot, I see it in the credit. <laughs> Uh, the future director of Spider-Man, Darkman, yeah. um, and he also had a cameo in uh, Maniac Cop. Oh, okay. Uh, and also, my favorite scene of this is right after they get the job and they're sent off to training. Uh, Bernie Casey fucking owns every second he's in it, and which oh, is God, which yes. is amazing because there's so many great sight gags, and you're compelled to keep watching him. But Matt Frewer, aka Max Headroom is one of the two soldiers that's with Bernie Casey during the training. Yeah, that's right, too. Yeah, damn. Right? This was loaded. Uh, Vanessa Angel is one of the Russians at the very end. She's from the Weird Science TV show and one of my favorites, Kingpin. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God, no wonder she looks familiar. And she's the one who ends up with Dan Aykroyd near the end of the movie. Right, yeah. That was such a funny scene. Like, everybody starts eloping. Even the two guys elope. And then Dan Aykroyd's like left alone with her and they just start smiling and it's just very subtle it was cute <laughs> but freaking chevy chased the entire time trying to get it on with the doctor <laughs> yeah there's so like, many fun <laughs> sequences in this the the fact that uh when they finally get there and they realize that uh the two guys in the car with them are spies um and and you know they have to have that scene i gotta take a pee he's like yeah that's great no, don't you want to take a pee with me? Can't you just go by yourself? <laughs> Come on, <man. laughs> How do 
you not get the hitman? Damn, oh, Chevy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the chase sequence where he's being strangled and Chevy Chase isn't paying attention. I love it when Chevy's a doofus. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> and this is the year, we did an episode years ago where this is the year of Chevy Chase. He did Fletch, a European vacation. He even had a small part in uh, Follow That Bird. I saw three of his four movies in the theater. Wow. Yeah. Saw European Vacation yeah. and Fall of That Bird. I never got to saw, uh, see Fletch. I saw it on video. Yeah, but it's like once you did see it, you're like amazed. Yeah. It's like, oh, this guy's a comedic king for a good reason. Yeah, it's a really oh, yeah. big idea. And Dan Aykroyd, I wish he had written more movies like this because his Ghostbusters idea and Spies Like Us ideas are very big, but with really grounded goofiness. So you don't get overwhelmed with the technical part of it. Oh yeah! Oh my God! Speaking of goofiness, when they were pretending to be those aliens with all those lights, oh yeah, <laughs> when they fall from the ground and just die, and they have their lights flipped out the whole time. Yeah, I, I remember. The, unless you were alive at the time, you don't know that "Spies Like Us" was a single by Paul McCartney, and it was a big hit. It played on the radio for a long time. Well, yeah, no, I was. I still had three more years till I was pushed out into the world. You were well, a baby. No, <laughs> all yeah, right. I was. I was. I was developing being a baby. Actually, um, you were just floating around in the ether. Um, is that mm-hmm. it? Is there anything else, anything else you want to say before we go to the next movie? Oh uh, God, I would love to watch this again, just on my own free time. God, you know, <laughs> it, it, for the longest time, it was only available in wide, uh, full screen, but it's clearly a widescreen uh, shot film. Even on DVD, oh, it, was, it was full screen. I don't know what happened with Warner Brothers, but finally when it came out on Blu-ray, they oh my god, thank you for finally putting it in widescreen, and then I was able to get it on Vudu in widescreen. Yes. Yeah, no, because it's a very expansive film. Right. But yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely a go-to movie uh, for a good laugh. Um, uh, next movie I definitely want to talk about, we were discussing, like, you know, companies and whatnot, uh, this I've never seen before. I've only seen I seen maybe one little piece of it, and it was a uh, Rick Moranis just like <laughs> again just like pumping on a stress ball after getting off the phone, and then just saying he loves his job. <laughs> oh, you've <laughs> seen that clip before? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Like seriously, Judge Reinhold does like own this performance, and I felt like he definitely should have gotten more laughs. He was a little bit more subtle. Yeah. Well, everybody else around it this is a movie um god i'm trying to remember the deal okay so hbo had a distribution deal with tristar so they would make movies that were kind of mid-budget to lower budget and they would put them in theaters with tristar but then they automatically got the rights six months later to air it on their station and after that they own the video rights and they have no interest in their catalog whatsoever except for like a couple of bigger movies like three amigos so everything just sits. They don't even bother to go find the original print. They issue it out on DVD in full screen. So I'm sorry, the version you saw was full screen. And, and it looks like it's a, a, a compressed. You know what I mean? Where they're elongated and, and squished? Yeah, no. It definitely felt like there were some parts of the scene cut off. But I, it's it's a really fun movie. And I wish it had been a bigger hit. It made like 4 or $5 million. And it really just sticks it in the thumb of the uh, sticks your thumb in the eye of corporations, and they're just idiosyncratic bullshit. Exactly, I know that's that's what I thought of immediately. I mean, it's it's a fun comedic, funny comedic delivery, but it's just so on point. 
Yeah, it's just <laughs> like when you, they actually you watch, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's fully loaded with, you know, not just stars like Rick Moranis and uh, Danny DeVito, Danny but it has DeVito. tons of those faces. Like, I know that guy, I know that guy, and just, it's a really good cast. Oh, God, yes, yeah. Um, the one who was showing Judge Reinhold around, I can't remember his name for the life of me, but it's like, I've seen that guy in so many films. Um, is it the oh. dad from License to Drive and Encino Man? Did he have a mustache? Yes, that's it. That's Richard Mazur, who ended up becoming the uh, head of the Screen Actors Guild for a while. Oh, wow. Wait, I think Richard, I think he was in this Amazon series Trans as well. He was dating uh, Jeffrey Tambor's ex-wife. Okay, I've never seen the show yet. Okay, so, yeah, so Richard Mazur, um trying to remember who else is in this. Okay, so uh, Captain Kirk's son from Rapid Con is in this, who I know from Fright Night 2 and Square Pegs. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, uh, he was his nemesis, the snubby oh, the, the little blonde guy that was... Uh, oh, the guy, I wanted to punch him in the face. Yeah, we have Eddie Albert from uh, Gold, uh, Green Acres, Jane Seymour. Boo. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah, Jane Seymour. You couldn't go wrong with her. And I, I love just how she uses her sexuality in such a comedic uh, way. <laughs> Freaking no, Rick Moranis's moments and scenes, like it wasn't, it was just absolute gold. He it just was. Gold I wish it was more of the like, movie, but he's so insane. I, I bet you he shot that one day, cranked up on caffeine. <laughs> he had to have been on something. My God, he was just pumping out the entire scene, call after call after call. <laughs> and then his secretary, as they're trying to revive him, uh, his secretary is on the phone with the client. It's like he he can't make that meeting; he's dead. And then they're trying to reschedule. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like he can't make that either. I mean, there's no other dancing way around it. He's dead. Yeah. He's, he's well, dead, it, it, dead. the funny thing is, Sue. I mean, Judge Reinhold should never have gone anywhere because you know his father got him the job in the first place, but he was kind of a bum. And, you know, he didn't let the job get to him, but because just the way that things fell, that everybody that was supervising him died or something happened to them, he got moved up. He just kept getting moved up, moved up, moved up, moved up until he had enough power to try to change things. That's the most important part of this is it isn't just sight gags and corporate poking. It actually has a lot of heart to it, too. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. What was pretty funny, too, is our security was um, monitoring him as he was entering like a request to actually like do his job. Like and help out with public relations, and then they're like, <laughs> they bust out of his office, like you know, doing this faux pas of uh, patriotic BS speech from head of security about <laughs> like calling him out on his stuff. It's like, dude, he's public relations. What the fuck's he supposed to do? He's doing his actual job. <laughs> man, that was just ridiculous. It was so funny though. It's like, man. Uh, a couple of the other camos, Don Novella, who was on SNL a lot during the 80s as, um, God, he was a priest, the Italian priest, what the fuck's his name, Vito Cor, mm, Father Guido Sarducci, that's right, Ah, yeah. I believe he's the limo driver, and then we have Brian Doyle Murray, so this thing is stacked that's with like right. really good actors. That's right, he was that general, um, yeah, he was involved, I think he was involved later, Turned out the corporation was trying to do a deal with some um, South American cartels. Yeah. Or, uh, no, no, no. South American government. Like trying to uh, buy some influence there. And Wallace Shawn from Princess Bride. Uh, and then Bruce Wagner was his co partner, one of the glasses. He's the crazy brother from One Crazy Summer, 
who's on the phone the whole time listening to the radio. Oh, that's oh my gosh, you're right. His crazy uncle. Oh, God, no wonder why he looks so familiar. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, what the fu- oh no, uh, Wallace Shawn though. Like when he just realized everything was going up, and all of a sudden he gets the news that he's going to be dead in eighteen months. <laughs> I know. He's just trying to brush it off, like his friends just trying to brush it off, like it's nothing, like to lift up his spirits, like he didn't just hear him. <laughs> oh, this is from the director of Airplane Two. That's why oh, he has really? that incredibly high energy. Yeah. Oh my God, Danny DeVito though, he was just complete chaos. God, I love Danny DeVito. This is right before he became a star. How? This is just yeah. before um, Throw Him Over from the Train really made him an A-lister. Oh wow! Oh wow! To think it was Throw Him Over from the Train. Yeah. Well, I mean, and yes, he had, he, had, he had been in Romance in the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, which did well, but he was like the third lead. And it really wasn't the reason he went and saw it. He was fun, but it's not why he saw it. But when Throw Model from the Train came out, and it made a, like $60 million, and made Billy Crystal and him like A-listers, uh, that really changed oh, things. Right. So right now is the point where he's just trying to get his face out there. He did a lot of SNL during this time, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course. Definitely. You can definitely tell like his um, sketch comedy work uh, definitely played into this. Just the way he was just like, you know, pushing everything down, like bursting into his office, pushing everyone out of his way. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, of course, you know, him, like Rick Moranis, their roles were short-lived in this film. <laughs> like, as he, like, jumps and falls out the building, like, uh, whoever that one co-chair was was just speaking, you know, positive about the company. And then Danny DeVito just, like, you just hear Danny DeVito just flying. Then he, you know, splats onto the building or on the sidewalk. Oh, man. Again, this movie uh, itself is a trip, and I, oh, it'd be a miracle a miracle if it got restored or launched digitally. Yeah, so many movies we run across. You're going to run across one in the next episode uh, called Beer, which is an, uh, from the same company, and it's available on Amazon, but their print is only okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, and that's on Amazon, another... no less. What's that? And it's streaming on Amazon, you said? Yeah, but it's only in full screen. It's, um... Ew. I know. Uh, but it's another... HBO owns the rights, and they never bothered to clean it up. But that's another one of these really clever... Oh. Uh, I can't wait for you to watch it. It's, it's a clever takedown of commercial manipulation. Oh, good. It's got Rip Torn and David Allen Greer, and I think his first role. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, what is Afterhead Office? By the way, it's available on YouTube if you want to see it for free. Oh, yes, do so. I recommend it. If anybody had not seen it yet, do it and do it now! <laughs> okay. Uh, next one, uh, just want to switch it up to a little bit, go a little bit dramatic. But this happens to be one of the most enjoyable and actually one of my favorite... Heck, my dad, he can't, like, if he's flipping through the channels and it comes on, he sticks to watching it. That and Logan and anything with John Wayne in it. Uh, yeah, he, uh, it's Silverado with Danny Glover, Kevin Klein, Jeff Goldblum, uh, Everybody. Danny. Everybody. Oh my <laughs> God, pretty much, yeah. movie. <laughs> Jeff Fahey, Amanda Wiss, um, Brian, yeah, you said Brian Kevin Dennehy. Kevin uh, 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 the, oh, it. she's on the show, and, uh, NCIS, uh, Los Angeles, what's her name? Um, 
Mariska Hargitay? No, no. she's the, the lady from order. the shorter lady. Uh, oh, damn, I'm going to have to cheat. I don't want to do this. I want to work my brain. Linda Hunt. Linda Hunt. Before I got the IMDb. That's I, who it I remember. Is. Yes. Um, uh, John Cleese, you said. Um, oh, oh, in his very oh. first role, I believe, is the dad from Stepdads. What's his name? Uh, guys, well, guys, you see all the time now. I'm going to... Um, oi, oi, oi. Yeah, bring it up. Well, just keep talking while I do this. Uh, James Gammon's in this. Lynn Whitfield. Uh, uh, Richard Jenkins. That's his name. Richard Jenkins. This is like I think the very oh, first wow. thing he ever appeared in. But now he's like a guy you yeah. see everywhere. Roseanne Arquette. Yes. Oh my god, an Arquette, no less. That's right. Oh my god, you're right. Yeah, it's just, it's just fully stacked. I saw this at the drive-in with Pale Rider, and I'm trying to find Pale Rider so we can do that on the next episode, but I'm having trouble, which is weird since it's such a common movie, but I can't seem to find it. Um, yeah. This is basically part of the revival of the Westerns. There's three movies that came out this year. Two were hits, one wasn't. Uh, it was Brussels Rhapsody, Pale Rider, and Silverado, and they all had kind of a revisionist take on the Western, whereas Pell Rider was more of the uh, solo, lone, kind of rough Western, and Russell's Rhapsody was parodying, like, Westerns before they were cool, like, back when they were musical Westerns. You know, they all wore white. Um, Silverado was bringing the aesthetic of classic 50s Westerns before the Spaghetti Western took over. You know, huge epic scope, score, a huge cast... But it also had the writing of Lawrence Kasdan behind it, and he had just busted his chops on uh, Raiders Lost Ark and the, the last two Star Wars movies. So he really had a knack for fun and clever action and dialogue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, and when it comes to character development, too, he knows what he's doing. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I've I, seen people complain I, about this, say it's like a cosmopolitan western, and I'm like, I don't know how you fucking get that when you got Scott Glenn and Kevin Costner. These are western guys. Scott Glenn's face looks like a dried-out desert land. <laughs> even, at, even when he was much younger. Right? Even when he was young, he was craggy. He was born craggy. Yeah, no, but he's yeah, and it's but it still holds up. It looks good for him. <laughs> oh man, but yeah, just the way this movie played out, you know, Scott Glenn kind of runs into Kevin Klein, helps him out. They head back into town, you know, helps out Kevin Klein with his issue with someone who stole his horse, and yeah, from then on, and then of course you run into Brian Dennehy and John Cleese, of course. Well, John Cleese, of course, because he's the sheriff. And, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. I'm like, oh wow. Huh. Yeah, it's, and it's, just it's, the way it lays itself out it's just well paced you meet Danny Glover yeah I mean oh, this is yeah, epic I mean, in every way absolutely oh by the way I have a Danny Glover impersonation that I like to say at work whenever I see someone not wearing a mask I like to do I like to say to myself quietly I'm not going to say it to the customer because I don't want to go to jail but <laughs> I don't want to kill you and you don't want to be dead <laughs> fucking <laughs> love that line good. But my favorite line from this is cheesy, is after they kill the, the dad or whatever, and they're going to kidnap the little boy, and the guy with the beard goes, he saw us. I was laughing fucking time. It's such a silly <laughs> yeah, reading. He saw it's like, us. <laughs> it's like, you really want to go with that line? <laughs> I know. I didn't want to do another reading of it, but it's funny. Yeah. It's action-packed. It's very dramatic, but... um. 
this is what made Kevin Costner a star. It really didn't work out for everybody else. In this. Well, no, that's not true. Danny Glover, I forgot. He did Witness in this at the same time, basically. And that led him to uh, Lethal Weapon. I think without Dan- without him being in this, I don't think he would have got Lethal Weapon. And Kevin Klein, of course, ended up becoming a big name. But Scott Glenn, for some reason, was left behind while Kevin Costner became a megastar. Oh, gosh, yeah, no, seriously. Around this time? Yeah, I don't really recall Kevin Costner being in anything else. No, he wasn't because this is uh, Lawrence Kasdan and him were really good friends. And this was his uh, making up for cutting him out of the big chill. He had only been in small movies like Canadian films and stuff like that, a small part in like Night Shift. Um, and then all of a sudden he got three movies in 1985. He got um, Fandango, which was the very first movie I believe that Steven Spielberg ever produced. And uh, oh, wow. it's him and Judd Nelson right before they go to Vietnam with two other friends and are out in the desert on this adventure right before they get sent off. Uh, he did American Flyers, which is, a, uh, I think they're competing for the Olympics in a triathlon. Um, and then he got this, and this is what made him a star. All of a sudden he got this, and then it led to Untouchables and No Way Out, and both of those are big critically acclaimed hits. Wow. Oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, of course. Untouchables, big Can't time. Can't wait to talk about Untouchables. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. But, yeah, Lawrence Kasdan, like, I know he came back uh, as far as it goes uh, – to familiar franchises, he came back and helped write The Force Awakens. And yeah. I'm fine with yeah, that. No, I, I love I, Solo. Was he involved in Solo? I feel like he was. Yes, I love Solo. I think Solo's fucking rad. I don't know what everybody was bitching about. Yes, I'm interested in what those other guys were going to do. Uh, uh, Miller and... Um... Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Thank you. I almost said Floyd and Miller. Lord and Miller. <laughs> um... Fliller. Filler. Just call him filler. Right. Um, I was interested in what they were going to do with it, but I'm completely fine with what um, Richard... Oh, my God. Ron Howard did. Yes, exactly. No, it overall was great. But, um, again, what Lord's Kasdan has been able to prove, even just with writing, he can do so directing as well. And, again, Silverado was just like, this, again... Um, a freaking western masterpiece yeah I mean they went back to the well a few years later with the Wyatt Earp with Kevin Costner and that wasn't successful um, because first off don't come out after Tombstone because Tombstone's fucking awesome (laughs) don't do that you'll screw it up but uh, it was just too long I enjoy it but it's so long this is a tight movie oh yeah dude like I said it paces itself pretty well Uh, but I think one of my I mean Again, being a fan of Jeff Goldblum, seeing him as a villain, it's like, oh, it's Jeff Goldblum. I don't want you to die. But <laughs> yeah. Damn, you shouldn't have been such a dick. Yeah. It's um, <laughs> it's like a road trip kind of movie. It has like this episodic nature to it, but it has a whole mm-hmm. vision to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, uh, those men killing off Danny Glover's uh, dad. Oh, yeah, they and, fucked up then. And, huh? and, Oh, they messed up big time. You don't mess up big time, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to kill you, and you do want to be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, just that big shootout scene at the end. Oh, yeah. Freaking great. And then that little showdown between Kevin Kline and Brian Dennehy. Oh, that's a hell of a thing. I, I the only thing I regret is uh, seeing Jeff Fahey taken out the way he did because I wanted a big showdown, but it's just like his back is turned when Kevin Costner comes around the corner and sh- shoots both of them at the same time. Yeah, 
Clever trick on his part, though, Kevin Costner. It's like, you know, he's the young, rowdy one, gets him in a lot of trouble, you know, ladies' man. But, you know, he definitely uses his talent. He uses what he knows. And it works out to his advantage. Yeah, it's a, oh, it's an absolutely fantastic movie. I wish it would come out on like a really good Blu-ray, but until then, hey, it's available like in so many sets. It's, it's ridiculous. You can get Silverado. I think Silverado set in the mail. <laughs> you should see it. Nice. Yeah, definitely. Oh god. All right. So, uh speaking of westerns since we're on the subject, yeah, let's discuss Rustless Rapper Rhapsody. Uh, <laughs> it, <laughs> it was You've never even heard of it, have you? You've never even heard of it. No, I have not. This is the first time I've ever watched it. And, I mean, of course, Tom Berenger, I'm familiar with the comedy, especially, you know, his performance at seeing him in Major League before that. Yeah. And having him star in Wrestler's Rhapsody, oh, gosh, just the way it started out, slight little narration, everything's black and white, bright, and he's just holding on to a... He's holding on to the uh, stern... On the uh, a saddle. Oh my god, I'm forgetting words. How can I kind of forget if we getting simple. What do words mean? <laughs> I just don't know anymore, Cletus. I just don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, just like him, like, you know, again, those, uh, mentioning the cheesy Western effects. And then, of course, updating them to now. Uh, <laughs> fourth wall breaking kind of stuff. You know, the realization, like, oh crap, wait, what's going on? Wait, I. Wait. I'm, it's like, why are they not chasing me? I'm the one outnumbered. And then, you know, goofy stuff, slapstick, um, comedic elements start to come into place. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember not wanting to see this. I was at a friend's house and we rented The Punisher and his parents rented this and they just popped it in whatever while we're playing video games and they were laughing their ass off. So I came out and watched and it was a really good movie. It's it's in the airplane mode, but not like not so heavy on the gags. There's there's a lot of spoofy gags, but it's not like you know the way a lot of them are. It's like machine gun joke, 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 joke. Right. It and, does pace itself very right. well. Right, and a lot of it's character based and dialogue based instead of just jokes because uh, some of it is just uh, Tom Berenger plays such an innocent like straight man, which is so weird because I don't think I've ever seen him do this again. No, he actually hasn't. That's the only thing I've ever seen him in. Everything else, he's been pretty serious. Uh, this was produced by Walter Hill, and he had intentions on directing it, but decided to step away from it and let the guy who wrote it, Hugh Wilson, cash in his check from making uh, Police Academy such a huge fucking hit. Um, so that's how he was able to get this going, but it's still not that expensive. I think it was $8 million. I tried to figure out how because it looks like it's pretty expensive. They shot it in the old spaghetti western way in Spain. Wow. That's why it has such a unique look to it. It doesn't look like Canada. It doesn't look like anything really in our west. And it's because they used the old sets from all the spaghetti westerns from a decade earlier. Right. Huh. That would make a lot of sense. That's why it had such a unique look to it. And yeah. yeah, it's very less populated. And the oh, reason... W. Bailey, though. Yeah, the reason he's not in Police Academy 2 is because he was too busy filming this. Oh, that's right. Uh, so they had to kind of retrofit it. Ah, I see, I see. <laughs> but yeah, no, he was just, it was funny how he was just like the narrator and like the town drunk slash psychic. Yeah. 
But, but I love that he kind of knows the rules. He's playing with the rules like yeah. the way the kid in Last Action Hero does. Exactly. Oh, now that you mention it. Yeah, it is pretty funny. It's like, wait a minute, hold on. i got to be a town drunk. <laughs> yeah, well, he keeps he explaining just, he things to him, too. Costume. And I love the fact that when he's like, hey, this, <laughs> this beer doesn't have a hair in it. Put it in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, God, no. Even, um, oh, yeah. As you mentioned, Tom Berenger, when he comes into town, he just wants a glass of warm milk. Yeah. But everybody looks around him and judges him. He's like, all right, can I get a, just a glass of cold gin with the hair in it? <laughs> got it. <laughs> like, it's got to be dirty and scuzzy. Yeah. And then Mary Lou Henner is... <laughs> the, the cliches are there, but they love to play upon it because, like, Mary Lou Henner plays, like, the local prostitute, but she's more than just that. She's really savvy or whatever and a lot of fun. Um, Andy Griffith is the villain, but he's such a weirdo. <laughs> I love... Harry, <laughs> gee whiz! <laughs> he's, yeah, he's bringing that an old school little flair like something a kid would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. See the wards in it. It's one of her first roles. And then you'll see some other faces show up. Like um, one of the jackasses from the first Police Academy is one of the Western guy, uh, villains. You remember the two that shaved their head in the first Police Academy? Oh, yes. Oh. He's one of the guys that shoots the one guy in the back. He's like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. That was hella funny. Like, what? Oh man! <laughs> like what the hell? Yeah, it's uh, uh, the the one thing that does uh, surprise me about this movie. Every time I see, it, I keep forgetting that John Wayne's kid is in this. Is Bob Barber, and I thought that was yeah. such a funny thing to do because you know his dad was like the quintessential hero, and he turns out to be the fake hero. Right. Oh god! You're not a good so, guy. I'm a lawyer, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, Patrick Wayne. That's what his name was. I'm like, yeah, no, I've definitely seen him in a couple of his dad's films. Yeah, well, he's also in Young Gun. He's the the first Pat Garrett before he got replaced in the second movie. Oh wow! Oh, huh. good to know. That I did not know, but yeah, it just overall was kind of heartwarming. Just so funny and well done. Oh no. Um, that campfire night scene when uh, he meets uh, Cell Ward and they're t- they both have the same named horse, they're getting along together. And then it's like, oh crap, wait, hold on, did you hear that? And then next thing you know, it's Mary Lou Henner. <laughs> and then next thing you know, it's G.W. Bailey. But like all, like, you know, talking to the hero <laughs> regarding a different situation. One wants to get with him, the other one's just kind of innocently wanting to get with him, the other one wants to be his partner. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Is that, is that when the sheep herders come in and they're like, what are you guys doing? Exactly. <laughs> I love it when they're like, oh, oh this is not our fight. This is the gunfighters. You get your ass out there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or I'm going to break oh, your arm. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. Oh, and of course, uh, but Tom Berenger, Rex O'Hurlihan, his character's name is. <laughs> he's like what's his solution he's like oh just shoot him in the hand I'm gonna shoot you <laughs> on the hand the hero never kills <laughs> yeah. oh the roots oh, kicking yeah. in that's another one I really love so he starts singing oh. and then he's like oh yeah the roots kicking in so you don't know if he's actually singing or he's tripping balls <laughs> <laughs> it's all one big hallucination <laughs> <laughs> oh man again it's just a heartwarming comedy and I 
every second of it. Yeah, and uh, I realized it was just going by so quickly because it's only like an hour and a half. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> one of those movies that's on the edge where you could pretty much show it to everybody, but it's not dumbing it down. It's got a little a couple risque jokes, so it's definitely a PG thirteen, but it's not offensive. Oh, of course not. No, not at all. <laughs> Man, I definitely want to watch it. That I'll definitely watch again. Yeah. And as you were mentioning, you know, speaking of GW Bailey, uh. Uh, going into uh, reasons why he couldn't be in this next movie, uh, Police Academy 2. I really, really enjoy the second one. I almost think I enjoy it more than the first. And the problem is on revisiting the series, there's a huge dive after this because they got nervous and they took it back to the Academy and I think that's where they flubbed. They should have kept going on more adventures. This one is... I think it's called The First Assignment. It takes it to the city. It changes up the cast a lot. It makes Howard Hessman their boss, who I think is fantastically frustrated, and uh, introduces Zed and, uh, um, shit, uh, the, the Sweet Chuck. Yes. Oh, God, Sweet Chuck. Oh, good God, just walking into his house and... Uh... Oh, no, no, you're thinking of the other guy, uh, his partner, the gross one. He filled with the Mad Magazines all over. I did that, by the way, to my room. I put Mad Magazines uh, on the wall, like he had, the way he had it put up in the windows and stuff. Oh, okay. I'm going to look it up. I can't remember his name, but he's one of those guys you see all the time. Sweet Chuck is the little guy with the glasses who was in the other sequels. Yes, Hightower was there, Tackleberry, and, of course, Larvel Jones. And Laverne, oh, and Hooks. Hooks yeah, is there as and then well. the rest of our new people. They, um, the funny thing is, after this, they really don't focus that hard on uh, Steve Gutenberg's character because um, in this one, they focus a lot on uh, Tackleberry and his relationship, which I think was a genius move because he really didn't get anything to do in the first movie except just be tough. And uh, in the third movie, if you watch it carefully, I really think Steve Gutenberg was on set for maybe a week. Oh, well, <laughs> well he shot so many movies in 86 and 87. I really don't think he's very much in those sequels. But, um, and Fackler, that's right, Fackler returns from the first one, who comes and goes in the series. Uh, we get introduced by Art Matrano, who plays Mauser. And I think the MVP of this whole fucking thing is, um, oh, fuck, uh, a, a Proctor. Is it Proctor? No. You know, he's his nerdy sidekick who's in the rest of the series. Yes, I think I know who you're talking about. Oh, gosh, hold on, let me see. He's yeah, Mouse. Lance Kinsey. Okay, yeah, yeah, he's uh, Mouser's right-hand man. He says some just ridiculous fucking stuff, and I absolutely adore it. Oh, God, yes, I know. Yeah, because I just realized he wasn't in the first one, and I definitely remember him being in three and four. The uh, so, Do you think that... Um, Bobcat just made up all his dialogue. I feel like he was just winging it. Oh god! I felt at this point, yeah. He's... <laughs> oh man, even when they were just going grocery shopping, just the way he yelled at them, and then at the end of it, it's like you have a very nice store. You forgot your coupons. No, oh man, it did just like uh, Gutenberg as he was trying to infiltrate the gang at the end. That little knife fight, that little stick up between the two. Oh, jeez. I love, <laughs> I love when he's, he has that silly mustache 
and he's got the big ass microphone attached to his chest, and he's just like, uh, "Oh, the zoo, the old zoo." It's like apparently sticking his face into his coat. <laughs> Such a doofus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will say around that time Mahoney was just kind of slipping, but throughout the rest of the movie, he's the cool guy. He's got it all settled out. Yeah, hell, even like seeing him at the beginning, like uh, on his little quad on the beach. You know, patrolling and taking that guy down, taking that guy down. He's like, "Hey, man, if you could actually do this, you know, things would be a lot better at the beach for everybody else." And then, yeah, oh god, getting Mauser with the, oh god, the glue, uh, oh, the shampoo, god. Glue fit. oh man, <laughs> <laughs> and then walking out completely naked. <laughs> Keep that dog oh, yeah. away oh, from god. me. <laughs> It was just Jones making the sound effect the entire time. And this is when they introduced the Kung Fu stuff, too. I forgot. Isn't this when Larvel Jones uh, does a... He starts doing the Bruce Lee impersonation? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what happens. I think... Oh, man, when he starts taking out a couple punks, trying to figure out where Mahoney is. Yeah. Oh, man. I just think that the the mistake in uh, the first movie was too many characters, and that's what they did with the three. Because they just brought in like 80 characters. The second one pars it down and really stays focused on the plot. The the actual thing that's going on instead of just waiting for a joke punchline, joke punchline. The, the whole fact that they need to go on their first assignment, they're completely fish out of waters, they all have new partners that are kind of something unique about them. And they have a... I mean, yeah, Zed and his gang aren't really villain villains, but they are still destroying the city. Yeah, they're running amok. They're punks. Oh, man. Oh, no, but, yeah, Kirkland and Tackleberry. Oh, my gosh. Again, they just saw eye to eye. I think Tackleberry just admits to Mahoney that he's never had sex before. He's like, wait, what? But he really? says it's so never? loud just as the music stops. And everybody looks, just goes, oh, my God. Back to it, everybody. <laughs> yeah, and then it ends up happening. I just love how, like, you know, he just goes to the apartment. They're impressed. And then, like, you know, she opens up the closet door and out folds the bed. <laughs> oh, man. By the way, Again, uh, the guys who wrote this, uh, Blostein and... Oh, shit, I can't remember the guy. But um, they went from Police Academy 2 to becoming Eddie Murphy's go-to writers. After this, they would write Coming to America, Boomerang, The Nutty Professor, Nutty Professor 2, The Honeymooners, and now they're coming back for Coming to America 2. Oh, yes, that's right, they did. Yeah, they came oh, off of SNL. That's how they, they were connected to in the first place. They wrote, like, 50 episodes of SNL. Oh, my God, that's awesome. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know who else was in this? Julie Brown. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. This is before she was a thing, before she went on MTV and before she did uh, Earth Girls Are Easy. Uh, and The Prom Queen's Got a Gun, I think, is the song that she had a hit with. I believe so, too. I'll have to look. But yeah, um, Howard Hessman, yeah, playing Pete Lassard, Commandant Lassard's brother, just like trying to carry this group together, trying to hold everything down in this district, even though it's like the worst district of the city. Yeah. Man, you could tell he definitely was kind of having some fun with the role. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the few times he played a straight man. Uh, before that, he was usually a sleazeball or a goofball, like in WKRP. And then I think this is what led them to casting him the next year in Head of the Class. Um, have you ever even seen that show, by the way? Head of class. Head of the class. He is a hippie teacher 
who is really grounded and just like your average Joe, but he becomes a substitute for a high-end like Horizons class where it's the brightest kids in the entire school and they're always competing in these contests or whatever. And uh, he has to somehow make them have actual lives. He becomes their permanent teacher. It was on for five years. He was the teacher for the first four and Billy Connolly was the teacher for the fifth season. Oh, wow. It's really a fantastic... I always say Revenge of the Nerds kind of normalized nerds, but no, it was really head of the class. Head of the class took just like normal looking everyday people this is where like robin gibbons started and uh the guys who put together uh you know who brian robbins is right the director or producer he did smallville and yes. so that they all started together on that so a lot of creative people from, that went on to nickelodeon together but it was they're just normal good-looking kids who were just super smart and it kind of broke the mold of what we viewed as nerds you know now that you mentioned it, I might have seen some... Yeah, it used to air on Nick, a, Nick and Night a lot, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to revisit it when I get the chance. It yeah, I'll, so I'll send you an episode. I believe they're on YouTube. Um, but I got off track there. But this is what changed how we viewed Howard Hessman, because now we saw him as an authority figure instead of being like a scumbag or a weirdo. Hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And he played it off really well. I thought that's like something he would... Uh, I thought those the kind of roles he was actually stuck to. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it, that came later in life, in the 90s and stuff, that he became more of a leader. But um, I, I do recommend the second one. The third one, uh, just based on nostalgia, but I watched it last week, and I was like, this is kind of shaky. So I'm not sure if I can keep going with the franchise. We'll see what we have. Yeah, I remember watching a lot part four a lot as a kid, so yeah. um, I don't know. I definitely will want to watch part three. Part six so is the closest to being like part two, where the city under siege, where they almost get the entire same cast, and then they go back out away from the academy and go on a mission, which is it's pretty good. Hmm. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. What is our next movie? Our next movie, well, it actually is one of my favorites growing up. I mean, and based off the classic board game, and uh, another Tim Curry favorite. Yeah, did this basically Curry? reintroduce us to Tim Curry? I feel like he was kind of on the, the fringe for a while. I don't know. Do you know what he did so. between this and Rocky Horror Picture Show? I only know of one movie, and it's called uh, uh, Times Square. I really don't know. I know he had an album or two. I feel like he was not a, a movie guy at this time. And then after this, he got Legend, and then and then it just kept building from there. Yeah, but I know I do know he personally loves sticking to voice acting, yeah. especially when he uh, discussed his personal experience listening on the radio, and just the way that some people like project that voice really give life to the character. He loves bringing that. Um, so I feel like he just chooses his projects when he wants to. Yeah. I remember like, this, this coming out. I remember seeing the poster on the wall, and I did not know for the longest time this was a massive flop. It was. Yeah, well, hold on a second. This is telling me differently. Give me a sec. I'm sorry. Wikipedia told me for the longest time it only made $2 million. But this on IMDb says it opened at $2 million and grossed $14 million. It cost 15 so I guess it didn't lose that much money. Oh, okay, yeah, no, but damn, to think that it was a freaking flop. Yeah, this is, a, this is what I call an all-star comedy jam. We get one of these every few years where every single person involved is like a name and they're just gold 
and it's just surprising. I guess it's because they're not all big names at the time. Um, but we have Eileen Brennan, who is coming off of, uh, I think, her Academy Award nomination for uh, uh, Private Benjamin. Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, of course. She was already a goddess by this point. Christopher Lloyd uh, was just starting to rise. Michael McKean was coming off of Laverne and Shirley and Spinal Tap. And then we have Martin Maul. Leslie Ann Warren, Colleen Camp, and then just a, a bunch of reg- uh, other guys as like smaller roles. Yeah, and Colleen Camp was in Police Academy too. Yeah, this is uh, oh, wow. kind of around her peak powers, and this is when she was like really like hubba hubba Barbie doll, Playboy model, kind of voluptuous, and everybody was like crazy for her. Oh, of course, yes, and of course Lee Bing, we all know from Fear. Oh God, fun. He's from the band Fear, the only band I believe to be instantaneously kicked off SNL because they had a fucking uh, riot slash mosh pit in the middle of a a, a performance and they destroyed the set. (laughs) They had to cut away because it was so insane. Yeah, no, oh gosh. Yeah, no, yeah, 1981. Oh man, that's right. Lauren Michaels has no tolerance for that stuff. Oh, Lauren wasn't on the the show at the time. Actually, he had left. That's when... um, Oh, you're right. That football guy. Damn it, I can't remember his name. But there's another guy that was in charge during the 80s. Um, Can I tell you this, though? Uh, This movie is responsible for me getting uh, turned on by uh, French-made outfits. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, duh. I mean, shoot. I bet. Yeah. But, yeah. Leslie Ann Warren, like for the longest time, I thought that was Susan Sarandon. She did resemble. I can her see that. I can totally see that. She was one of the first milfs, I guess, if you want to call it that. Those two were like the sexy cougars during the eighties. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. But man, oh yeah, and there was a cute uh, little a cameo appearance by Jane Wheedlin of um, the Go Go's, <laughs> the little singing telegram girls. <laughs> She's just singing she's singing the singing telegram and then bang. That's it. She's dead. <laughs> and then Bill Henderson, uh, playing the police officer. The only thing I remember him from is he was one of the guys in Buckaroo Bonza the year before. I'm sure he's one of those character actors, but I can't remember. Mm. But yeah, just the way it played out, um, again, very funny. Uh oh gosh. Just seeing Tim Curry recreate every scenario oh god that was so much oh. fun well I, here's the thing is uh when it was in theaters i think i think you knew this when it was in theaters it uh had a different ending for each time you would go see it but on tv and video it had all the endings yes no um i didn't know that until recently actually uh because you know again watching it you know ending one ending two and then ending three which was the true ending but yeah no that's pretty funny that's a pretty fun trick yeah, it's a it's a really fun, fast. It's almost like a stage play. I'm so shocked that no one's revived it on stage. Um, it moves like a thousand miles per minute, and it's from a guy who had never directed a movie before. He had done a bunch of British television, only writing it though. I believe John Landis was originally going to direct this. He decided to produce it instead, and then moved on to Spies Like Us. And uh, when this didn't do well, Jonathan Lynn could not get hired for a long time. Uh, then he had a hit in 1990 with Nuns in the Run, and then it was just gold from there. My Cousin Vinny, The Distinguished Gentleman, Greedy, Sergeant Bilko, Trial and Error, The Whole Nine Yards, The Fighting Temptations. That's a lot for a guy whose career was Holy thrown crap. away. <laughs> oh, you know, actually, I think we recreated this. Uh, shoot. In my old high school, I think it was a freshman. Really? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, they ended up just going. Please with tell the, me you wore a French made outfit. <laughs> no, I looked like a. Looks like a drunk old Irish barmaid. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a fresh outfit. No, 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 wait, no, I didn't do that. No, someone else did. I was the cook. Oh wow, yeah, I had on a wig and everything. I'm starting to remember now. Well, okay. Okay, I don't want to go back that far. Mm, I was, if uh, I were to do this now, I'm sure memory. I'd be Professor Plum. I'm sure. Oh gosh, yeah. Oh god, that was so funny. It's like, oh yeah, sure, you could do that position. Here, let me show you. Get off me. <laughs> Melanie Khan, though, with her subtlety, like, you know, um, again, in the true ending, she's the one who killed a vet. <laughs> what she's trying to explain. <laughs> yeah, the flames, flames, uh, flames on, on the side of her face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. So missed. Again, yeah, uh, just Tim Curry, though. Oh my god, I'm running from each place. Yeah. It's like, wait, where'd he go? And then he pops out the secret pantry. <laughs> Man, I love it. Oh, that, this is a classic you can still revisit. And Oh, yes. And you can get it pretty cheap, too. Oh, yeah. And again, just ends so perfectly with a, a particular song. You gotta shake, rattle, and roll. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> Oh man, no. now now it makes me want to play the board game. Dang it, I don't have it anymore. I don't know what happened to it. But yeah, I think that's it for this episode. Oh, is it? Okay, I'm sure that there's one more movie. Oh yay! I'm because I'm tired. I'm an old man. Okay, so <laughs> my voice always goes. My voice always goes <laughs> around uh, minute forty-five. I don't know why. Oh, it's because I don't have anything to drink. Screw it. I got eye drops. Let's put that in my mouth. <laughs> My tonsils have dilated. Oh, shit. <laughs> and now they've got like this. Is that supposed to be an impression of Mitch McConnell? <laughs> Is that how he... That's right. You know what? When I, saw, when I saw Mitch McConnell talk for the first time, I was completely confused how he sounded like this because in my head, when I saw his face, I assumed he talked like this the whole time. I'm Mitch McConnell. No, I hate everybody that's calling me. <laughs> No, he's got a really yeah, deep, disturbing... I think it's because he stores his voice in his bottle. I seriously think he's decaying. I Honestly, if I... If he starts, like, giving a speech and there's, like... He starts melting away like Jerry Servant did in Fright Night. Yeah, or I, or the guy that. in RoboCop. Or, or if he turns into, like, the skeleton from Army <laughs> of Darkness. He's like, Sally forth! Sally forth! Yeah. Yeah, I, honestly, I prefer the melting bit. If he starts melting away live on television, I would dream to that and I'd probably applaud. I'm melting, I'm melting. Keep voting for me, though, even though you give me terrible approval ratings. I hate you, guts, I hope you're all Keep voting for me. Don't you tell me he won that election fair and square, because look how many Democrats uh, registered and only half of them voted. Only half of the Democrats who registered voted in Kentucky? Are you fucking kidding me? No. Yeah, that's gotta be some. And that's oh, the end of God. conspiracy theory hour. Michael Jacob, jeez, we derailed again. Uh, <laughs> uh. All right, okay. But yeah, no, I yeah, I believe that's it. Yeah, we've discussed spies like us, head office, Silverado, Clue, Police Academy two, and Rustler's Rhapsody. Yeah, no, six six films. All right, so we have one episode left of 1985. I had my list and I just put it away. 
Oh, damn it, I wrote it down. Son of a biscuit. Oh, well, check us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind Podcast. And uh, be excellent to each other. Jacob, send us out. Namaste and good luck. Good luck. Seriously, I wrote it down. Dingleberry. I had it. Whatever. I know Pale Rider. I'm going to try to find it. But we have some other ones like beer and uh, beer. It's liquid bread. It's good for you. We like to drink till we spew. Ooh. Who cares if we get fat? I'll drink to that. So what? Damn, I can't. I'm losing my voice. Oh my god, that's actually how the song goes. It is. What gets you drunker quicker? What comes a bottle liquor? What comes a bottle or a can? Beer! How I love it. How I like to chug it. With my belly under here. Need to be feeding to be giving the most wonderful drink in the world. Hooray! I don't even know who sings it, but I used to play every Friday on the old rock and roll station. Fuck, if anybody knows, please tell me I love that song. Okay. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Weird Science, obviously, is going to be one of them. I got a list. I'll find it eventually. Okay, everybody. Have a good night. Did you say namaste and good luck? I don't know if you did. I did. Did? Okay. We, we can go now. Sorry, everybody. That's awkward. I make sure. You can't do it. It's bad luck if you don't. <laughs> All right, everybody. It is the second half of our... Hit Rewind uh, mixtape collection of 1985. We're doing the second half of 1985, July to December, choosing five albums each. John's on the other side. How's it going, everybody? Yeah. We're all waiting for your response. Don't make us sit here in, in silence, okay? Oh, you're all good? Oh, the election went the right way. Cool. You? Oh, it didn't go good for you? Turn this fucking thing off right now, you asshole. <laughs> all right. So let's, uh, as usual, you start first. Alrighty, so for my first one from this half of the year, let's take a look at The Cult's Love. Which was one of my choices. I had to go back and redo my list, by the way, everybody. Yeah, I know. I had two I had two albums that uh, that he was uh, interested in, and I did give him the option to take them. No, no. I did I give just, him the option. I kept searching. I actually think you might have taken three. Did you pick Husker Du? Uh, that's next year. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, so so spoil yeah spoiler. Oh, (laughs) you ruined the next episode. (laughs) But yes, uh, this is the second uh, cult album. It's uh, basically. Have you ever heard any of Ian Ashbury's previous band, uh, the Southern Death Cult? No, I've never even heard of them. Okay, yeah, because Ian Ashbury started a band called the Southern Death Cult. It was a bit gothier than what the cult ended up kind of being. but he basically just kind of toned down the gothiness, added a bit more uh, Native American and shamanistic undertones to his music, and basically kind of kind of reinvented the Doors in a way, if you think about yes, it. Yes, that's that's one close connection I can think of. I've always tried to think, like, they, they moved up with the hair bands, but they were not a hair band. So I was always trying no, to think and, of someone you could compare them to, and you're right, the Doors. Yeah, because it's very much, like, I mean, you've got a lot of, for my money, I I do think their the following album, uh, Electric, is a better album than this. But Love is kind of the album that I cut my teeth on for for the cult because it's one of those bands where I had heard of them, but I hadn't really known anything. And then at one point, uh, I heard Cell Sanctuary, and that song blew my socks off. And I went, Oh my god, I got to really check these guys out. And I picked up this particular album. And it is amazing, you know? It's like, 
you have uh, Love is a great little bop track. You have Big Neon Glitter. But it's like the uh, the main single from this album is Rain. Yeah, I was going to say that. Rain is... <clears throat> that one's underrated as hell. Because everybody talks about she... Boy, I'm going to have trouble with this one. She Sells Sanctuary. <laughs> is the yeah. one that always, is, is, is always played. But Rain is a better song, I think. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, Phoenix is also, like... Phoenix is like this entirely like different song off the entire off the rest of the album. It's this weird heavy, you know, like goth metal goth punk metal song. And it's like everything about this this album is just so, you know, so tight because the first out al- the, the first album is okay. Uh, like I said Electric I think is the culmination of this as well as uh, Sonic Temple, but but more so Electric. But it, like I, like what I was saying, things like Metallica and some of these other bands, this is kind of where you start seeing all those pieces come together and be solidified. Oh my, I didn't even notice. I didn't even know that they were <clears throat> a UK band. I always thought they were out of Los Angeles. They just feel, oh, because it says in 89 they were they relocated to Los Angeles. I always felt like there was kind of that movement. Oh yeah, yeah. It, Holy shit, and, he did join, he joined the Doors! For a brief while, <laughs> I didn't know that. No, I don't. I don't think I noticed that in there either. So that's a, that's kind of surprising to me. But at the same time, yeah, not. it says became a lead singer of the Doors of the 21st Century, which essentially means they're a cover band. <laughs> yeah, but still, it it makes sense with with Ian Ash, Ashbury's voice and everything. It that would be a perfect fit. Wow, I, this is a band I really don't know that much about. Actually, I'm just kind of looking through. Well, that's the thing. It's like when I talk about Electric being a great thing, is it was produced by Rick Rubin, who is, like, I think when it comes to, well, it, I want to say hard rock and metal, but he also, I mean, his his hands are on, like, everything. He produced Johnny Cash. He produced Public Enemy. He produced so much stuff. But it's like, it seems like if you really don't know what you want to do, but you need someone 100% uh, who can get you there, you go to Rick Rubin because right. there's pretty much anything he does is, you know, kind of turns out to be gold. So, and if you want to sell out, go to Mutt Lang. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody who was like, "Well, we're on the verge of success. Let's go to Mutt Lang and become fucking sell out." The bullshit sound. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Mutt. I know you're rich. You can probably sue the shit out of me, so I should shut up. Yeah, we're so much small potatoes. What is, what is he going to do? Get the buck 50 I have? Yeah, right. You want some old copies of uh, Blu-rays from Vinegar Syndrome? <laughs> uh, all right, so... <coughs> sorry, I'm, I, I shouldn't have... Uh, I should have waited until I was completely digesting my lunch. I'm coughing. Um, my first choice is Dio, Sacred Heart. Basically the last, like, truly great album from him after this it becomes a little bit of a mess because this is when the band starts breaking up and different producers it's not selling as well um i prefer this version of dio than like the like what do we call like the muddy sound of like the late 90s early 2000s yeah yeah because well that's the thing like when you pick this one it'd been quite a while since i had heard this album and i love me some dio but Really, this album does kind of feel like it's the kind of I don't want to say the beginning of the end because he still put out good stuff after after this, but not as cons- not as consistently solid. Right. 
and this album just isn't as solid to me as the two previous works. But, you know, it's like, it does have, like, you know, Rock and Roll Children is a jam, and, like, it's Hungry for Heaven, you know, it's like Beat of the Heart, you know, some great, there's some solid tracks on this, but you sit there like Dream Evil, and, uh, oh, God, the, what, the one after... Lock uh, Up the Wolves is after that. <clears throat> no, no, the one, the one before that, it's like Dream Evil, and uh, the one, one other before that is... No, I thought, I thought it was, I thought it no, was... Dream, I'm sorry, Dream Evil is after, I think. It goes Sacred Heart, Dream Evil, Lock Up the Wolves, then I want to say he went back to Black Sabbath, and then that's when he did, um... Yeah. That's Which when he I started like doing the muddy, the muddy uh, metal, I want to call it. I don't know. I'm sure there's an actual technical name for it, but um, but you feel that yeah, in Str- I... Strange Highways is where he starts playing with that sound. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And you got, you know, the two Magicas that, and that were like the end of the career and stuff right. like that. But yeah, it's the... Uh, yeah, it... I kind of felt like this, yeah, it kind of felt like it was like the end end of a lot of stuff. And, yeah, then it kind of yeah, dips, ebbs and flows from then, from there on out. Well, didn't he have the guy from Def Leppard, the the guy with the long curly hair, um, uh, something Campbell. And I'm pretty sure he was his guitarist oh, on God. this, and then that, after that he left. And that's why the sound changed, because it wasn't so much single-oriented is what I should say. A lot of these songs felt like they were meant for a radio. Where after this, it seemed like he didn't really wasn't really interested in singles, and that's why it didn't help his album sales. <clears throat> yeah, it, every all the songs are just kind of there to be part of an album, and not necessarily here's here's a calling card for my thing, right. like a single would be. Though I could go the rest of my fucking or, life without ever hearing the last track. Shoot, shoot is just lazy. Like we gotta finish <laughs> this album. Oh, I don't like that one at all. Yeah, there's like I said, I don't think this one is as solid. Yeah, uh, yeah, because he, has, he had two albums prior to this. I'm sorry, I'm, my brain is a little <laughs> at the moment. Mine's always like that. But yeah, because so it's. Good. <laughs> but yeah, you know, Holy Diver, of course, is the masterpiece. Uh, the second album, which I keep trying to think of the name of, it's like Last, Last in Line. Line. Yeah, yeah, is is a friggin' solid. You know, not as good as as uh, as Holy Diver, but damn, if you're gonna compare the two. <laughs> But yeah. it's like, yeah, kind of like Sacred Heart thing goes, it's another step kind of down from two steps that are like on the top stair, top, top step of a stairwell to maybe a third of the way down sort of, sort of feel. Though what, what fascinates me about him is that he saw what was going on in music and how it was all turning like generic fucking hair metal bullshit like poison. And he goes, yeah, I'm good with what I got. I'm going to go actually go darker. Fuck these guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, and that's at least the thing about Dio is – Dio's been nothing if not, and this is going to sound a little strange considering all the things I've been saying earlier, but he's been nothing if not consistent. He knew what he, he kind of knew what he wanted uh, once he once he gets gets th- into this into his career ways, mm-hmm. and he kind of sees it. It's like like Motorhead and stuff like that. It's like once once you kind of figure out what it is that you like, you know, it's it's producing something of that standard and quality um have you ever actually seen how long ronnie james dio has been around before he really broke out i didn't know oh yeah the 50s was yeah no 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 before that he was in this is is the name of the bands that he was in seriously i don't know what's wrong with my throat sorry the uh so he was in ronnie ronnie and the red caps ronnie dio and the prophets the electric elves then the elves then elf (laughs) 
But yeah, especially it's like because uh, was it? I had one of those compilations that included included stuff from like uh, from Rainbow and things like that as well. And it's so interesting to kind of hear him kind of doing rock and roll, and then you know kind of how it transitioned into like the into like pow you know power ballady metally type stuff, and you know the uh, you know the rainbow style and then him going into uh like the sabbathy stuff that became dio uh do you want to know what the first hit single he ever was involved with <clears throat> i want no what was it rock and roll hoochie coo my boyfriend's back and you're gonna be oh. in trouble <laughs> i don't even remember a guy's voice on that but it says he was uh it's a second guest appearance no, he probably, he's probably just one of those weird random voices in the background yeah. then. Oh, like, yeah, hey, like the yeah. ooh, ah, ooh, ah, you know, like something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that, my assumption is he's probably like right in there somewhere. All right, what is your second choice? <clears throat> Let's see, my second choice. Let me swap back to that one. You're looking at uh, Dawkins under lock and key. I threw these this band away i threw them in with a whole group of hair metal guys <clears throat> and it wasn't until i started going through all the mtv videos i think i said t- i told you this i was going through a playlist of every single video that ever came out starting in 1981 and um i didn't realize Dokken was basically at the very beginning of that movement they were still in the age when motley Crue wasn't full-on hair band they were like you know a dark metal band well what do you call them Hard Rock? Let's see, which one? The Motley Crue. What, what would you consider them before Motley... they went full glam? Like the first couple albums. Uh, well, the first couple albums, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's I just go heavy metal. It's, okay. It kind of has that just kind of slightly, I don't want to say generic, but they, yeah, they're, they're kind of in that uh, that vanguard for the glam stuff because they, you know, it's like Slade and things like, things like that. Okay, so yeah, they had the influence of the 70s. Uh, glam rock, but then they cranked it up, mixed it with punk and metal. But uh, Dawkins yeah. seemed like they were like more focused on their their uh, their concept, I guess. Because Motley Crue just kept changing their sound and their style as the years would move on, whereas Dawkins really seemed locked in for a long, long literally Dawkins locking. Um, <laughs> if this van, a van is a rockin', it's because we're listening to Dawkins. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just I appreciated what they were actually trying to do and it seemed like from the beginning they knew exactly what they wanted so because they didn't really evolve but it's because they already knew what they where they were going i can't talk i don't well, know what and, i'm trying to say well it's, the sad thing is like this is a band that almost just kind of came and went without anyone noticing yeah because their first album just showed up and tanked so badly that the it album did? didn't even want to let them yeah the, the label didn't want them to even do a follow-up and so they uh they got the label got convinced to do it they glammed him up, and uh, with the their previous album Tooth and Nail came out, and that was a huge success. So then, this kind of album, because it was the first album, was basically kind of like a kind of standard metally type thing. It's it's kind of generic. It's not that good. It's not that bad. It's just kind of all right, you know. And so they they kind of start giving them this kind of poppy arena rock sound like Def Leppard, and that really got them this got them noticed and i do have to apologize because you know what this album is trash because there's too many incomplete words in the titles 
you know, slipping away, lightning strikes trice, till the living end. <laughs> what the hell? Man, these guys were hip, man. They were cool. Don't you mess with that. But I, I don't understand. The opening track, Unchained the Night, why was that not the lead single? I know. <laughs> That's all I could do. It's like, because the, hunt, the Hunter, the second track, is the lead, and it's fine, but it's not what I would have led with. You know, it's just, there's, there's again, really good arena rock sounds. It's like, if you like Def Leppard, if you like Journey, if you like stuff like that, Dawkins is your jam. Okay, so here's the funny thing is, I didn't realize that Breaking the Chains, um, that's the first single I'd ever heard from them. And I, and I saw that it was from a 1981 album, I was like, that can't be right. And they didn't release it for two more years. They released it at the end of 83 as they were starting to uh, pick up popularity and re-release that song uh, and then put it on MTV. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you get the song that, that you kind of work, that you think kind of works and you hold it and uh, work with it until you know that you got it. Yeah, they you know broke out, but most people only know them for the Dream Warriors song. Yeah, that's, that's actually how I knew them. I, it's, it was a uh, discovery to actually decide to go back and start listening to some of their stuff. Just be like, all right, you know what? Let's actually hear this. Let's sit down and actually start listening to some music here. Huh. I wonder why the band broke up just as they got successful. It says they broke up in 88. Oh, because he wanted to go solo. Oh. Dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. That's what, it, that's what anyone does is I'm... I'm the most important one. I am going to go and uh, and go and be. Uh, I'm, I'm the most important person, so obviously, well, the band named after him. <laughs> so let's go. Go ahead and uh, go solo, even though the band's named after me. And all that does. What a fool! Because I'm looking at this back for the attack. It debuted at number 13 and went platinum. The second one, or the, the album that he made after that on his own, it, it debuted at number 50 and it didn't do shit. It didn't even go gold. It probably didn't go bronze or whatever the hell's after. Is there anything at, before gold? <laughs> Copper? No, I, th I think gold is, is like their basic, okay. is your basic starting point. Alright, am I next? I'm you next. are next. Okay. Because um, I had Dawkins on there too and I marked it off. I had all these albums on here. <laughs> you got to first. <clears throat> Oingo Boingo Dead Man's Party I know Oingo Boingo comes up on here a lot but uh, it's probably only one more time so don't don't get upset but it's also a fantastic album I think it's the last time they really had a beginning to end phenomenal top of the line album I think the next one they start you know he gets distracted by doing all his composing that the album isn't as strong and see I didn't have, I didn't really have to listen to this one because it's already my fucking jam you know just another day, Dead Man Party, No One Lives Forever, Stay, Weird Science. Those are all tracks I love already. They're all on like my Spotify like songs. They are you know constantly in rotation. Yeah. It, this is this is them firing on all cylinders. It's like I mean I have to say it's like it's easier for me to say what song do I not like from this album. The only one I don't I, think I, was, I, could, uh, I could not tell you off the top of my head. I if someone says same man I was before, I'm like I don't know what that sounds like. Yeah, it's I thought that was okay. Like that and Fool's Paradise are all right songs, but it's Help Me is the only song that I don't particularly like off this album. No one lives forever is such a grand, dark, weird song. Yeah, it and that's just it. It 
it's very understandable why this album would be picked and why this album is kind of like it's the album that if you know any Oingo Boingo stuff, really, this is the one you know. Yeah, and this is the one where it ended up in a lot of movies. Obviously, Dead Man's Party was in um, Back to School. Just Another Day was in uh, That Was Then, This Is Now, Weird Science. Um, uh, I don't know what movie that was in. No, I have no idea. I, that, it must be a small independent film. Uh, it, yeah, like or, a, or this, it, it might have been on a TV show, too. Maybe, I, no, I, what, like I uh, CSI or something like that? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, and then uh, <laughs> No One Lives Forever is from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, one of the best openings to a horror movie ever. <laughs> But yeah, it, yeah, it's like this is this is peak. This is peak Oingo Boingo. This is everything about that that I think that I think is great about Oingo Boingo is in this album. Is in this album one hundred percent. This is insane. Do you know this album is their biggest album and it debuted at ninety five? What the hell? <laughs> well, yes, but that's only because it's the you know. They didn't. It's not necessarily that that they had sold particularly well, and I think we talked about their last album in the previous show. I think. Well, not the previous. No, it was show, two. It was 1983 because we skipped his solo album from '84. Okay, but yeah, we we talked, but we did talk about their previous their previous album, and it it's a good album, but it's one of those things where you go, yeah, that's you know, you can see that it wasn't going to. Uh, sell units when you get to the next album because I think even then uh, what did weird had weird science come out when this album hit maybe that's why because that might have been like depending on when let me see when the album was released because weird science was released August of 85 yeah it's like go ahead I'm sorry Yeah, it's good came out based around these uh, these singles. It after until afterwards. All the, yeah, basically uh, a big chunk of that is just kind of based around whenever these uh, the movies came out in relationship to the album because you're looking at you know Weird Science in particular that was on MTV all the time. That was a that was a huge huge deal as i recall and you know if you have that in relationship to the film if the album dropped before the film goes you just have this kind of odd oddball song at the end of the album right and then otherwise you've got this uh theme song to a movie that uh, was pretty popular it uh it so. came out two months after the movie but most of the other singles were not released until 86 okay so didn't so weird science didn't necessarily drive this album as Guess much as not. it could have, but good lord, considering these you know again considering these songs, it, especially so, again Dead Man's Party. It's so strange that he doesn't like weird science and they don't they never performed any of the concerts. He even said he, it just didn't feel like it was part of the band's repertoire. And I'm like, yeah, actually it kind of did. I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, no, I can I can get that. I. I like the song before I before I say anything negative, <laughs> but I I get it. It's it seems like it's one of those commercial deals where it's like, oh, I was asked to make a theme song for a movie. All right, you know, I'll I'll t- 
ten, spend ten minutes, I'll knock this thing out. Ooh, it's about Frankenstein. You yeah. know, blah, 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 blah. You yeah. know, I, I can get kind of, kind of the not being a huge fan of it, even though it's one of the songs that basically defines the band. Right. But it's also a curse of the band, kind of like the way ACDC was in the 70s, where they don't wrap it up very fast. The the uh, the full single Weird Science is like so long, and it could have been two minutes shorter. It just goes on and on and oh. on. Like, come on, wrap this up. Oh, I'm very well aware, uh, mostly because I have it in uh, the game Rock Band. Uh-huh. And oh, like you're if tired. you keep playing it, <laughs> it just, you get... We get really bored of it after a while. All right, what is your next album? Let's see. Next on my list, you're looking at The Damned, Phantasmagoria. Uh, this, another one almost made my list. Yeah, it's like an early pioneer of goth music and fashion due to uh, Dave Vanian's uh, wardrobe choices and his vocal style. Yeah, this was my favorite of the ones you chose. It's... Actually, no, I won't say this is my, not my favorite of this grouping, but this is pretty close. This is pretty close to the top. Because uh, it's funny, you've, you've heard, you've heard uh, older Damned stuff, haven't you? No, actually, this is the first time I've ever sat down, I think. Maybe I have. I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I feel like it's the only one that I've ever sat there and listened to. Yeah, it's like they start off as basically just a fairly straightforward punk band. And it's like by the time you get to their fourth album, they start really kind of shifting into this goth this gotha thing and basically they just kind of straddle the line between uh, between the two you know it's like they don't go any you know too far like a goth sound like sort of mercy or christian death or black tape for a blue girl but at the same time if you like these kind of heavier goth things the damned especially around this time is 100 percent like totally there for you yeah it was great and this it's a movement i never really paid attention to and doing this show has really helped me find like the birth of that sound and you know breaking up and building of what was before it and after and it clearly is a bridge to the newer alternative scene of the 90s yeah and that that is the funniest thing is post-punk which a lot of these a lot of these bands kind of are like the cult the cure uh, a lot of these these groups that kind of rose out of what punk was doing and then decided to kind of go in a little bit more experimental routes in some cases. Uh, like we did Psychic TV, 100% a post-punk band that was the earlier uh, early progenitors to uh, industrial. It's all these things. People kind of looked at what what music was and decided to kind of go, well, let's try this. We're gonna we're gonna be a punk band, but we're now gonna fade into a little bit more darker melancholic tones and things like that or we're just going to create a sonic scape and uh, if you like it you like it if you don't and focusing on harmonies and stuff like that yeah and it's oh man there's oh god like streets of street of dreams that sax opening oh man well and also shadow of love just gave me such a goth boner (laughs) that it's like uh, so good, so good album. Kind of, kind of makes, kind of makes me sad that I didn't actually do uh, the damned go- uh, black album first, like when that came out. Cause yeah. That that's a solid album too, but but I, I was I did kind of pin pin this one as kind of going. 
Yeah, I think I'll hold off until we get to Phantasmagoria. My turn? Your turn. Okay. Tim by The Replacements. And I just looked at this right now. The cover of their album was designed by the director of Johnny Mnemonic, Robert Longo. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> good, good. I knew he was a... I knew the guy was a uh, designer and artist and things like that, so... That makes sense. That was a weird period where they did that. They, they would hire those guys. Like, the guy who did the... Uh, was it Tim Pope who did the second Crow movie? Uh, he was just, like, like art installments and uh, album covers. Yeah, it's like... For, for the replacements, I basically know these guys uh, for the song Alex Chilton and I Will Dare, which I had heard off of this 80s post-punk slash alternative compilation album. Oh, was it called Left of the Dial from oh. Rhino? Yes, it was. it was. Yes, it was. And that title comes from this album. Yep. And do you know what and, that refers to, by the way? Oh, that is uh, co- for college radio stations. Yep. Uh, college and high school the... radio stations were always uh, under 92. Um, anything under 92 is like a tax-free... Well, it, I can't remember what it's called. I even worked in it, and I can't fucking remember what it's called. But it was something about you could do it without commercials, and you didn't have to... You still had to follow the rules of the FCC, but you didn't have to follow like certain tax codes or whatever because you weren't commercial based yeah see i my college radio experience was all internet radio so we didn't have to we still followed uh-huh. fcc guidelines and stuff but we did not uh have to did you have to do the fucking to commercial breaks or not the commercial breaks the uh psas and uh yes okay. we did i didn't know if you had to do that um, I remember having to do the math on it. It was just torture sometimes. Like, I want to play this song next. I can't have too long. Shit, I got to do a PSA and I got to do the top of the hour and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but uh, this is when the replacements changed their sound. I actually don't really care for anything before this. Um, it's too loose. It's too wild. It's uh, it's not very uh, listenable in my opinion. I know some people swear by everything before Tim. Um, and, and actually, some people are okay with Tim. Uh, some people are like... Uh, Okay, until what? Pleased to meet me is when they're like, "Fuck this band!" and they sold out. Um, <laughs> they sing my favorite song of all time, which is on the next album, "Can't Hardly Wait." But "Bastards of Young" is one of the absolute top-notch, greatest anthems of lost youth. Uh, and oh, I heard I dug it. That... Go ahead. What? Oh, I dug that one quite a bit. They uh, they were on SNL during their years where SNL really was scrambling for some cool bands. And when the replacements popped on, and I saw it in a rerun on Comedy Central around 91, 92, and I wasn't even really paying attention to the episode because it's not very good, but all of a sudden I was just like, wait, who is this band? Well, these guys really have like a, a different kind of energy than I've ever seen on this show before. And then it just slowly over the years, they keep coming back into my peripheral. And then when the movie Can't Hardly Wait came out, I was like, yeah, I got to find out who this band is. Now, I kind of feel bad, bad in saying this, but in a general overall sense, I did not like this album. It's okay. Hey. But, well, no, no. But it's one of those things it, where it's like it didn't hit me like it really should, and I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with this album. I think it's solid, actually. But it just – it feels like this is my jam. It really does, except it's not. Yeah. It's I, I, guess, I guess it's – Maybe it's it's kind of like utopia, in in that regard. Right. Like, yes. I, I can see going, that. Yeah. There's there's something in in the replacements that I I'm totally loving, but it's like this was not 
this was not it necessarily. Even though, yeah, it's like Bastards of Youth is amazing. Left of the Dial is great. Waitress in the Sky was was a tight uh, was a good track. I'll Buy was good. Well, you know, do you like, think it's interesting how you know, Paul Westerberg's career went because he's one of the few bands that evolved with his age. I mean, they started when he was a teenager, and they were wild and crazy and, and hardly produced at all. It was just, like, raw. And as he got older and matured, so did the sound. And then when he realized he outgrew the replacements is when he went on his own in 92. And, uh, you know, he had that big hit with Dyslexic Heart. And now he's just more of a, a coffeehouse, jazzy kind of. You know, you, you would hear his songs playing in the background there. Okay. All right. That, actually, I might, I might go and start taking a look take a look for that because kind of sounds good yeah it's uh it's just it's one of the few times where most bands get nervous when a sound changes and the fans start to reject it and then they go back to the old sound where paul westberg said no it's full-on straight ahead i am not going back yeah and that's i totally respect that too because there's a point where it's evolve or die and some people just can't do that yeah they just Sit there, they'll they will uh, strike ahead regardless of uh, of you know whatever the music trends are, or they will you know crash and burn, or they'll give up and just stick to uh, the most generic you know the genericness of right. And where with him it was, uh, I mean, it was obviously a smarter writer than a lot of bands at that time. He, that's why they were such a big hit on college radio, but. I think that his songs got denser lyrically, not just sonically. And I feel like a lot of artists just run out of things to say. And it's just as it, he was evolving as a, a man, uh, so did the complications that he would add to his songs. Yeah, I can see. I can. I can totally see that. And yeah, you're you're selling me on. <laughs> Which is weird I'm because going, and going down the line, yeah. Uh, I discovered Paul Westerberg at the same time as like Matthew Sweet, and Matthew Sweet seems to be going in the opposite direction. The older he gets, the lighter his sound gets, and I'm like, oh, you're trying to be too poppy now. <laughs> uh, you next? Oh, uh, my next one is Wasps: The Last Command. Now, this is a band I really do feel kind of gets the short you know short end of the stick and that's kind of well uh, basically this uh this album was produced by spencer proffer who uh worked with like heart cheap trick the beach boys and quite riot so there's a kind of i i would hope that kind of explains how i don't want to say simple the sound is but kind of how it's a very for a glam rock metal band yeah it's a very pop sounding one what album and, had and i'm pretty a, sure they sang it but it's i want to be somebody I'll, you be somebody too isn't that theirs oh i'm looking right now it was on the previous it was on the 84 yeah. album okay. yeah yeah I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the name of the song like because the the big song from from that one really is animal fuck like a beast yeah which became the notorious which you were telling which, me is the reason why a big driving point behind um the pm what is it pmrc the pmrc stuff yeah which i which we are we are going to get to today because yeah that happened at in this half of the year but uh yeah this basically 
Wasp kind of became the band that was, you know, we are sexual perverts and all that sort of, that sort of, uh, fixation on them being dirty sexual, uh, miscreants as opposed to any kind of thing. And the problem is, I think that if people really listened to this album and not the first one, you would have, they might've actually had a different career. Because, sure, this album does have a fixation on women, too. They're lovers, ball busters, or victims that need to be avenged. But it's not really that crass. Like, again, Fuck Like a Beast is pretty fucking crass. But, <laughs> no, compared to like, now, it's like nothing. Yeah, but it's like, it's... They, weren't, they didn't really lean into this stuff until you, they started kind of being put into that... put in that pigeonhole. And so then... All you're getting is just this, and their career, like they've got some very solid stuff out there. Like they got some really good albums. Uh, after a while, Blackie Lawless became uber Christian, and he didn't want to ever sing any of these little perverted songs. Wow, okay. Ever again, but uh, yeah, it, they're they're still going. They're still making making music, <clears throat> and I I do I do kind of suggest giving some of their uh, later career stuff uh, a, sh- a shot. I think uh, was it uh, the Crimson Idol is is a great album. There's uh, Golgotha if I remember if I'm remembering right. That one's a great one. Like there's some good there's some really good stuff out there that they that they've done. But in the case of this one, you know you've got Cries in the Night, which is amazing. Widowmaker, Wild Child. These are all fucking great rock songs. <laughs> Ball Crusher is a great you know headbanger track. You know, you just sit there, uh, blind in Texas, while time's getting, you know, getting blind drunk on moonshine and other liquors in Texas. It's all the song is about. But it's like, yeah, there's, now they do have two, two little anthems, back, you know, back to back. You have Last Command and Running in the Street, uh, Running Wild in the Streets. Last Command is the better of the two, and it, when you get to uh, Running Wild in the Streets, it's just kind of, I've heard the song already, and it was better three minutes ago. Yeah. But yeah, I. What do you, What did you think about this one? Because I'm kind of curious if it was fine. one any experience with Wasp? Uh, but... Not really. I, I had listened to them. I was working out at a gym uh, back in uh, 2013, I think, or 2014, and I was listening to a Ronnie James Dio tribute album, and Wasp, I believe, did a cover on that, and that led me to just go listen to some of their stuff. And I just remember I Want to Be Somebody really seemed like a fucking kick-ass anthem song. I looked who sang it, and I was like, Wasp sang this. It's not what I expected. Also, for some reason, I thought they were one of those falsetto bands. Um, you know, they just only sing yeah, they, that high pitch. They have some tracks yeah. that high, but not like... Yeah, he doesn't really go that high, yeah. Yeah, I, I tried listening to Fate's Warning for this list, and I listened to the first track and said, Nope! <laughs> Fuck that, I'm not listening to falsetto. <laughs> fucking hate falsetto. Oh. Oh, I'll have I will have to go and do a Merciful Fate or King I, Diamond I hate album. You. That... Don't you dare! <laughs> All right, well, <clears throat> when we get to the '90s, I'm gonna add Spice Girls. Fuck you. <laughs> eh, I'm not I'm not that uh, picky. I know, you're a better man than I am. <laughs> I just have a bit of falsetto. <laughs> um, oh, uh, I guess it's my turn with uh, uh, Armored Saint. Um, I'm surprised actually how much metal I've been able to add to this because uh, I didn't think I would. I thought it'd be like, oh, Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, that's it. 
But the reason I love Anthrax so much is because of Armored Saint in a way, because their lead singer took over in the 90s, and that's yeah. the sound I love with Anthrax. They're fine in the 80s with some really cool tracks then, but it has the falsetto fast scene that I don't care for. Or not falsetto, but it's well, just he, really high-pitched. Um, John Bush is my is my uh, definitive Anthrax vocalist. Right, what is the guy's name? The original singer? That John came Bush. Back? No, no, no. John oh, Bush. Oh, oh, uh, oh, oh. Ah, I can't think of his name. I, I yes... Uh, I had it in my head the other I'm day, I'm a bad Anthrax fan. Yeah. But John Bush is the absolute best singer, and I think he writes the best songs, too. But he, and, and Armored Saint is completely forgotten, basically. I love that I threw in Anthrax, and it gives me a picture of the lesion caused by Anthrax. Thank you. I'm going to go throw <laughs> up now. Jesus. What, now, what's funny is, okay, I genuinely have no idea if I've heard had a, if I actually had heard any Armored Saint before this album, uh -huh. well, okay, that's not entirely true because I did have the Hellraiser three soundtrack, and that does have a oh, are they okay? Have an Armored Saint song, it does have an Armored Saint song on there, but I mean, like any MTV videos, I genuinely, I like, I could tell you, yeah, I've heard Stormtroopers of Death, which is another band that kind of spun out of Anthrax. It's like, and I'm kind of thinking, it's like, did I ever listen to any Armored Saint? when I was doing that kind of, like, dive, you know, out, outward dive. And I can't think of any. And thank you for for putting this on here, because I fucking love this album. Dude, speaking of, have and they I, ever put together a book, like a coffee table book of heavy metal album covers? Because that's one of my favorite parts about heavy metal is the imagery, the, the you know, like the sword and sorcery epic sound or whatever. And uh, some of these would make the cover, or would make that book, and I really like the cover of uh, uh, Del Delirious Nomad. You sure? Because I thought this album, album art blows. Uh, I'm pretty <laughs> like, sure I'm looking at the right yeah. one. Hold on, maybe I'm thinking of something else. It's, Just... it's, like a guy, it's like a guy in a, I don't know if it's a burning building or something like that, but it's very generically blah, whereas a lot of their other stuff has... And arm, a dude in armor and stuff. Yeah, I thought that's those, what I was looking at. Oh, no, March of the Saint is the cover I was looking at. Never mind. Yeah. Ooh, I like this one. Raining Fear or Burning Fear? What is that? Raising Fear. That's yeah. a good cover. Okay, so I was wrong. Never mind. Scratch what I said. Yeah, it. I. it's like I really – I'm surprised that they didn't break out big because this, this album shreds. Yeah, but they get like, better. I really do believe in the 90s. Because, see, here's the cool part about when he was with Anthrax – Oh yeah, Delirious Nomad. That is a shitty cover. Never mind. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> forget what I said. Uh, Anthrax was cool, and they let him go back to Armored Saint every once in a while. Like the way that um, shit, Mike uh, from Faith No More. Mike uh, would go back to Mr. Bungle. Um, yeah, Mike yeah, Patton. Patton. Yeah, uh, it's funny we remember at the same time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really enjoy this album. But I do think they get better. But for an early album, they really do have their sound pretty locked down by the way it was joey belladonna is the the singer thank you thank you i'm sitting there going it's it's a it's an italian e type name <laughs> and i'm going what the hell is it? it's like i was going like something like sort of like cappuccini or something like that i'm like no i know that's way wrong uh, i so think I'm it was z cavaricci the gene guy who was the lead singer <laughs> Yeah, I like. I go. I don't know where I'm pulling this from, but damn it, <laughs> I should know this. Luigi Capicola. <laughs> All right, I'll move on. But, but there's nothing really I gotta yeah. say about this. But it's it's just a pretty good album. Yeah, it. This is 100% a solid thing. If you love thrash metal, this is this you. You better have this on, like, have stuff from this on your playlist. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it last episode. Is where I always throw out. Um, 
uh, Slayer, and I throw an Armored Saint instead. Yeah, no, I, I, these these two fit right next to each other. I think they are they're definitely. Uh, oh, in case in case you're wondering, they do have a new album out this year. Oh, cool! I did they did take a listen to it. It's pretty good. All right, your turn. My final album for this for this one is Dead Kennedy's Frankenchrist. That is one hell of a good title. <laughs> oh, we we get cheated out though. If we should we should have both had the original record pressings for this. Why? Because okay, all right. Well, first of all, this is their third album, and the first album is the one with all the hits. But I I really think about this one and go, it's like Black Flag's My War, where it shows the growth of this band, as their actual musicians, lyricists, everything. This is this is maturity as opposed to just kind of cranking out really pissed-off uh, rock tunes. Hold on a second. Who's but, the lead singer of this band? Jello Biafra? Jello Biafra. You're yeah. fucking kidding me. My friend Ken, just, you know Ken Reed, uh, he yeah. just did an interview with him on a show. I didn't know that. I didn't know who he was. Nice, yeah. Jello's, an, Jello's a really interesting dude, so I, I would love to hear... I, I definitely got to hear this uh, thing. But this album is the source of two controversies. Now, the first is... The cover of the album features the Shriners Parade. You, you know who the Shriners are, right? Yep. Yeah, if you don't, they're basically like society. <laughs> yeah, they're known they're basically known around known for riding around in little parades in these tiny cars wearing fences. Uh, basically it was a photo taken by Newsweek in the seventies, and the Shriners in the pick attempted to sue the band. I can't find the resolution to the case. But uh, it is definitely uh, related to the second controversy, because the original record sleeve had a uh, included a poster of H.R. Geiger's Landscape Number no. Twenty. Oh wow! AKA the Penis Landscape. Oh nice. Yeah, it depicts rows of penises, one of which has a condom going into vaginas. Oh, if you've ever yeah. seen an H.R. Geiger thing, it's yeah. <laughs> so. Basically, Jello wanted that as the cover of the album, but uh, fuck no, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so, but it got to be added as a poster, and it included the record. Actually, had a warning, like it was wrapped, and then there was an additional wrap that had a little sticker that warned about the content. And they got sued for distributing harmful material to minors. Oh boy! And it almost, it almost bankrupted uh, the their al- uh, label, Alternative Tentacles, but. It did kind of spotlight uh, Jello as this champion of free speech, which then, plus all the stuff that we're going to talk about with the PMRC, yeah. But damn, this this album, like, I had, I had forgotten, like, I I seem to transpose Frankenchrist and uh, the album that comes after it a lot, where I kind of go, I was I wasn't thinking about doing this one originally, and I was. Because I was thinking, like, oh, yeah, so what with Anarchy for Sale and some of these other ones? And I'm like, oh, wait, no, this has Soup is Good Food and MTV Get Off the Air. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, Goons of Hazard. Jello wrote a song about MAGA before oh, MAGA wow. ever happened. Oh, source losers ever. You know the Confederate flag is the most ridiculous. I never really actually sat and thought about it, but I thought the, the Confederate flag was only around for, like, three years. And uh, 150 years later or more... We're still obsessed with it, and now it's just going to be replaced with a MAGA hat. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, it's... 
Yeah, it, this is definitely not an album if you are conservative. Yeah, no, <laughs> not even close, yeah. Yeah, so everybody, if you have a guess by now, I kind of lean left. Yeah. But yeah, it's... Oh, this album's so good. I mean, again, Soup is Good Food, a song about the downsizing and replacing workers with machines. You know, there's... It has, like, one of the most fucked up bits in the middle of it where it's like this guy is getting stopped from committing suicide off a bridge because not only is it legal, but t- tourists are m- might see it. So can he just move along and kill himself somewhere else? Oh, my God. <laughs> what was I watching the other day? It goes, in the future, a suicide's a crime, and they'll, uh, <laughs> the punishment is death. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. The punishment for suicide is death. All right. Yeah, it's like a growing boy needs his lunch is basically the Republican government doing shitty things around the world, but it's okay because they're all Christians. <laughs> you know, uh, Jockorama, which is basically kind of like how, how it's terrible. You know, like jocks get to, you know, especially in like Texas towns and things like that where football is the biggest thing. So jocks get to get away with everything. Yeah, that's but so it does, that's But true. it also, but also means that, you know, oh, you know, yeah, they also end up with the most horrible, you know, brain injuries and stuff like that, too. And it's just a song that kind of covers both sides of that. Yeah. How it's just, this culture is shitty and you shouldn't be uh, dealing with it. My turn? But yes, it is your turn. Okay, last album. Um, anything that almost made the list for you? Oh, I do have quite a bit of stuff that didn't, that almost made the list but didn't. Uh, the first Clan of Zymox album... Faith No More's debut, We Care A Lot. Uh, possibly the first death metal album. This is debatable, but Possessed, Seven Churches. Uh, Celtic Frost's Two Megatheron. Uh, Jesus and Mary Chain's Psycho Candy. Skinny Puppy's Bites. Uh, Alan Parsons' project's Ster- uh, Sterotomy. And uh, Einsterzend Novotin's Halbermesh. Okay, so you're is way fucking cooler than mine. Oh my god. My why like I told you, I've always been kinda of generic uh top forty radio when I was a kid. So um none of these actually made my list, but I wrote them down as like, I'll listen to these. Like I said, you took like three or four of mine. I had the cult, Fate's Warning, I, I just changed my mind on that one instantly. But the ones that almost made it, uh Big Audio Dynamite, I didn't write down the album title, I'm sorry. Uh The Jets, Mike and the Mechanics, Mr. Mister, and in excess, listen like thieves was so close to making it. I will say, Mister Mister was not not so much a inspiration, but it was it's on my old my full list of things that come out that I at least went. I'll mark this down as as possibilities as opposed you know yeah, like, yeah. as a, going down for every every year, just kind of like okay, what might be interesting to do, and that was that was on my list, but not. Never got to the consideration points. Uh, so my final choice is Freaky Styly by Red Hot Chili Peppers, their second album. And there's two eras of Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I don't think a lot of people know what happened before Under the Bridge. They were a wild, fun party band, for the most part. And they had some success in, what, 88 with Mother's Milk, and then after that they just became the big, yeah. epic, arena-filling band. But their first two or three albums sound like just a bunch of kids in the garage goofing around. And this one has more production value. It has, like, a, the, not, I want to say ska, but you know how Fishbone had that beach party where they had horns and 
it's it's totally it's it's produced by George Clinton. So okay, you know, there's a reason why this album is as funky, right? So funk oriented. This is, it is this. It doesn't have any actual songs that stick out to me, but it's the whole feel. It is a party album. Throw it on, and your friends are going to have a good time. Listen to it in the background. Well, that's the thing. It's like I never really gave uh, old uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers a go, and I, I don't have a very good reason why. I mean, the best I can say is I had a compilation album years and years ago. What hits? Is, we all had it. <laughs> no, no, really. No. It was a B-Sides rarities collection called Out in L.A. Oh, okay. And basically, it was it's really, it's a fans-only CD. Because there's, it did not leave a good impression on me. Which is weird, because I, I did kind of look, you know, I got it I got it from one of the those Pyramid Scheme record club things. <laughs> and and so, I, I think, I, if I remember looking it up, there's some stuff on there that I kind of go like demo versions of tracks from you know this era and whatnot, but I, I'd probably want to go back and listen to it now. But at like 11, 12 years old, no, no, a little, I was a little older than that, like 13 or 14. Uh, it, it was too early for me to uh, really listen to this. Yeah, and it's it's weird. The sound is uh, back then it was just Flea and Anthony Kiedis. Uh, Chad Smith hadn't joined and Frashante who comes and goes with the band uh, he wasn't with them yet so it wasn't as like more power track filled back then they had what Slovak who uh, overdosed in 88 and uh, Cliff, Mart- Cliff Martin or something like that he was on the drums so he just has a whole different feel and uh, I feel like the songs have a little bit more um, they have a party sound but at the same time they have uh like it's not on this one; it's on the previous one. But real men don't kill coyotes. I feel like there's a lot of political activism kind of going on in the background of their songs. Well, and yeah, and like you, you totally have stuff like because uh, they have uh, Hollywood, which is a cover of a song called Africa by a band called The Meters. Yeah, which is which is a hell of a track. You got to uh, sign the Family Stone cover. Uh, there's some like there's some really really good tracks on here, but this is another one where it's like. I like this album, but I don't like this album. And I think it's mostly the music in this, on this album, is phenomenal. And it's definitely, it definitely has, because of the, the George Clinton, uh, his his influence on this really, really makes this thing worth listening to. Vocally, and especially lyrically, I'm not, I'm not as sold on it. Again, you kind of, you bring up the, uh, like, kids having party you know fun party stuff and basically just kind of comes off as a lot of i don't want to say dude bro but it's kind of dude bro yeah (laughs) and it's there's nothing necessarily bad about that but yeah like sex rap and catholic schoolgirls rule you know some of these things where it's just kind of like eh yurtle the turtle (laughs) (laughs) that's from a dr seuss by the way (laughs) yeah yeah but it's it's the song, it, like some of these stronger songs. Like again, American Ghost Dance is great. If you want me to say that, the sign the Family Stone cover, those things, extremely solid stuff. And you just kind of want to go, you know, it's like, you know, it's like it, there's so much stuff that you're just like, I really would love, wish this album was better. But it, at the same time, it's not bad. There's nothing necessarily. N- overly negative i can say about this other than i would lo- would love 
a more mature Anthony Kiedis to go back in time and have and write lyrics that are better. Yeah, yeah. And what they well, I think I think the next two albums really start to bring them out of that shell. Um, Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's the thing. It's like I, for me, where I kind of ran into the into the Chili Peppers as a band that I really liked was actually with Californication. Like, yeah, you know, Under the Bridge and all the stuff that's off Blood Sugar Sex Magic is really good. And, you know, especially Under the Bridge itself. Yeah, well, Unhot, One Hot Minute is the one that's my favorite. But Californication's probably second best. But yeah, it's like, it seems like about that point in their career where they kind of, they became a little bit more, quote unquote, adult contemporary. That's, that's kind uh, of it's where It's called Adult I... Alternative. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but yes, it's... That kind of seems where where their stuff kind of becomes a little bit more pleasing to my ear, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I, I hate to I hate to end this episode, but I gotta go to the bathroom so bad. <laughs> oh, okay. So we'll have to do a, a spinoff or something for uh, for the PMRC stuff because damn. Man, oh, well, let me some... just pause it. Go to the bathroom. <laughs> Sorry, kids. I had to download some software. <laughs> I was cramping up pretty bad. I was trying to talk. I was like, I can't. I can't. My, my legs are pinching you, together. I don't think that that worked as well as you thought it was going to, because that kind of sounds like you just drank uh, or ate uh, your because <laughs> you downloaded. I as opposed to what I got downloading my software. As, a, as opposed to well, you download as you take it into yourself. Oh. As opposed to purging something, okay. you deleted some stuff. Crap! Uh, I had to erase my hard drive. <laughs> there we go. All right, empty my recycle bin. Or something. <laughs> there, that's bad. That <laughs> All right, what were you? Okay, continue. Okay, so uh, this during '85 we had the uh, PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Center, uh, and their Senate hearings. <coughs> now. We, we, we had spoken about this quite a, a while ago, which it was founded basically in order to give parents, quote-unquote, more uh, control over children's access to music that had violent, drug, or sexual-related themes. That worked out but, well. <laughs> yeah, it was primarily made up of these four Washington wives who were uh, married to, like, movers and shakers of influence. You had, like, uh, Tipper Gore, and I don't didn't write down the other people this time but yeah tipper gore from uh senator al gore at the time now vice former vice president uh and one of their solutions to this issue was to have the riaa create a rating system for their albums and then this could be used to censor anything deemed explicit by banning mtv from playing videos from r-rated albums oh wow making retailers yeah making retailers have to keep those albums like under the counter and it basically would have the music industry reassess the contracts of musicians who performed violently or sexually in concert. <clears throat> and so they went and picked a list of 15 songs that proved their point about how music was responsible for the moral decay of society. And this is the filthy, filthy 15. Uh, Prince's Darling Nikki for really? Sex and Masturbation. Oh. She, well, it's a Prince song. Of course, it's about sex and or masturbation. Uh, Sheena Easton, Sugar Walls, for sex. Ah, oh, Sugar Judas Pri- Walls. What a ridiculous song. <laughs> Judas Priest, Eat Me Alive, for sex and violence. 
Vanny, uh, Vanity's Strap On Robbie Baby for sex. Motley Crue's Bastard, one of, one, one of mine, for violence. ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You. <laughs> I'll, let you guess, I'll let you guess what that one was I for. have no idea. I'm pretty sure it's about food. But I made you bake goods. Eat them. <laughs> Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. Guess what for? Why? Vi- violence. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this... this You'll, you'll, some of these songs, you'll sit there and go, really, this is what you think? It's like, uh, Madonna's Dress You Up for Sex. Wasps, Animal, Fuck Like a Beast. Take <clears throat> take a wild guess. Uh, no, I have no <laughs> I idea. It sounds so no uh, soft rock. Is, is, is that a, isn't that yeah. a Barry Manilow cover? <laughs> it is, 100%. Uh, Def Leppard's High and Dry for Drugs and Alcohol. Merciful Fates, Into the Coven for a cult Black Sabbath's trashed for drugs and alcohol uh, Mary Jane Girls a band I've never heard of for oh, In My House God. yeah yeah that's a dirty song uh, In My House is a big hit yeah I don't know that song at all uh, Venom's Possessed for a cult and Cin- Cindy Lauper's Shebop okay <laughs> yeah which yes is about masturbation <laughs> But so, in August of, of uh, 85, the RAA did agree to put parental advisory stickers on the, on the albums. But the Senate had already agreed to hold a hearing on quote-unquote porn rock, uh, specifically on the subject of the content of certain sound recordings and suggestions that recording packages be labeled to provide a warning to prospective purchasers of sexually explicit and other potentially offensive conduct uh, content. Uh, and this was going to be this was going to go before the Senate Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. Transport. Okay. What? what? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That that sounds like a Senate committee that is handling way too many fucking things to have to listen to a bullshit argument by their by their. Uh, irritatingly aggravating wives who want to uh, ruin everything for everybody by because they don't like what they're listening to on the radio. But now, this is a goddamn movie because there are three musicians who came forward to fight censor fight this censorship: Dee Snyder, Frank Zappa, and motherfucking John Denver. <laughs> I remember this was a VH1 movie. Oh, they did do a movie on this? Yeah, it was a VH1 uh, for your, uh, damn it, parental guidance. Uh, hold on, I'll look it up. Yeah, this, yeah, uh, just this right here. These three people, you have the lead singer of Twisted Sister, Frank Zappa. I mean, both these guys, they make sense that they would definitely want to come together, even if they didn't really share any uh, any commonalities in their music styles. But you would think John Denver. <laughs> That's the one I think that actually helps save this because he's, you know, legit. Oh, yeah. People love him. Oh yeah, and that's he has a very he had a very good reason for it too, which I'll get to it because uh, there's some of the the uh, arguments or they'll, they'll come up in my notes a little bit. Okay, later. so the movie was called Warning Parental Advisory. It was in 2002 from director Mark Waters, who the next year I believe directed the Freaky Friday remake. Uh, Jason Priestley, Meryl Hemingway, and Dee Snyder playing himself. <laughs> okay, but yeah, that yeah, this 
they they should do another another film with this, but I I will have to see this movie. I'm gonna look it up but, right now. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Republican Senator uh, Paula Hawkins presented the covers of Def Leppard's Pyromania, and the Wasp self-title uh, debut, as well as uh, Wow by Wendy O. Williams, uh, as well as the videos for. Ben Halen's Hot for Teacher and Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It, as her evidence of how bad everything is. Basically, Def Leppard's Pyromania is a burning building with, like, a weird crosshair in it. It's it's not that bad. Wasp's debut album has the band looking in this post-apocalyptic setting, and there's a skeleton on the rack in the background. Wendy Wendy O. Williams' debut album is apocalyptic also, but it's a really basically what it is is her not wearing a bra. That's the only thing oh, I can come tell. Because there's really nothing. It's it's like a picture of her, like a little bit of fire in front of her, and something in the background that you can't really make out. But she kind of looks like maybe she's an extra in Road Warrior. So, but yeah, she's not wearing a bra. That's that's the most I could I could gleam as being how damaging this. Dear is. Lord Nibbles, no. <laughs> But yeah, and okay, sure, Hot for Teacher is somewhat salacious of a video, but even then, not not really. Uh, Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It is literally a PG, you know, PG movie where kids, you know, kids are uh, fighting against the school administrator and he gets, like, knocked through a basketball hoop at one point. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, basically, uh, she commented on all these things, going, "Much has changed since Elvis's seemingly innocent times." <laughs> they thought it was horrible back then. Yeah, kind of. You kind of forget the fact that Elvis swiveling his hips was controversial. <clears throat> Subtleties, suggestions, and innuendo have given way to overt expressions and descriptions of often violent sexual acts, drug taking, and flirtations with the occult. The record album covers, to me, are self-explanatory. Not really. No, no, no. You're full of shit. And then they also had, uh, you know, even though there are many, they admitted that there are many causes for all of society's problems, they kind of felt that those were too hard to solve, so dirty music was the thing that was going <laughs> Of course, it's the easiest scapegoat. <clears throat> yeah. In addition, uh, Dr. Joe Stussy, uh, music professor at the University of Texas in San Antonio, uh-huh. spoke regarding the power of music to influence behavior. He argued that heavy metal was different from earlier forms of music, such as jazz and rock and roll, because it was church music, uh-huh, and had one of had one of its central elements, the element of hatred. Okay. And Dr. Paul King, a child and adolescent psychologist, uh, a psychiatrist testified on the deification of heavy metal musicians and the presentation of heavy metal as a religion, saying that many adolescents read deeply into these songs. Hold on, can I go to a church of heavy metal? Yeah, the church Fuck of Dio. yeah! <clears throat> well, no, there's uh, not not a metal church, but there is one. Oh God, who is it? If there's a there is a jazz church, and I want to say it's like uh, it's in uh, San Francisco, I think. And I'm trying to remember who. Your voice literally, I'm trying to remember so who it is. <laughs> I, I would. I. It's a place that I genuinely want to go to. And I want to say it's like a Duke Ellington or something like that. And I, if I'm wrong, I feel like such an asshole for saying the wrong guy. But what, or it might be Miles Davis. But seriously, there's like one. There's a church like in San Francisco based or, 
you know, that has him as not a saint or anything. It's not sacrilegious, but it is kind of based around the idea that music is, you know, is a universal language of unification. I'm so down for that. That's cool. It's Christ, it's Christian as shit, and you know, I'm not. You know, it's like that's not necessarily my my personal religion. I want to go there at least once in my life because I have to see this place. I have to go and and attend a service there. Anyway, going back to... (laughs) uh, During his statement, uh, Frank Zappa asserted that the PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the interpretation and enforcement problems inherent to the proposal's design. John Denver referred to the proposal uh, proposed labels as censorship, saying that he was strongly opposed to censorship of any kind in our society or anywhere else in the world, and that his experience in his in his experience, censors often misinterpret music. Uh-huh. Kind of like what happened with his song Rocky Mountain High. Oh yeah. Yeah, he further compared the PMRC proposals to Nazi book burnings and expressed his belief that censorship is counterproductive. <coughs> I quote that which is denied becomes that which is most desired, and that which is hidden becomes that which is most interesting. Consequently, a great deal of time and energy is spent trying to get at whatever is being kept from you. You know, and same thing, uh, D. Snyder kind of felt that, like John Denver, his music was misinterpreted. Somehow I doubt that. <laughs> 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 I, I'm sorry, but uh, D. Snyder is pretty good at just saying... <laughs> A lot of stuff, but he defended the Twister, Twisted Sister song "Under the Blade," which had been interpreted by the PMRC as referring to sadomasochism. Oh, I thought it was suicide or something. And uh, we're not going to take it, which PMR, which they accused as promoting violence, and told the panel that "Under the Blade" was inspired by a band member surgery, and it was about the fear he imagined one uh, one would experience undergoing, announcing that the only sadomasochism bondage and bondage and rape in this song is in the mind of Miss Gore. Further stated, Miss Gore is looking for sadomasochism and bondage, and she found it. Some looking for surgical references would have found that as well. He concluded, the full responsibility for defending my children falls on the shoulders of my wife and I, because there is no one else capable of making these judgments for us. That's a good argument. Yeah, it, like I said, it's really it, they just all sat up and basically just hobbled this their arguments because they're going look at all this stuff we we lived in simpler times and now girls got their kids hanging out <laughs> and strippers but so in november the iraa once again agreed with the labeling albums but then put on that generic parental advisory label that we all know and love now which helped sell so many it's, albums <laughs> it's exactly the exact opposite exactly. We wanted. except i hated it, the walmart cuts and that's what you would hear on the radio oh. with the stupid scratches or whatever. And mm. well, that's the thing is, uh, PMRC wanted something that was a little bit more more elaborate, but they went with those. And uh, many stores like Walmart refused to carry them initially, which then led to those clean versions of albums. I had one of those. I had uh, 311's Transistor. That was the uh, Walmart clean version. Oh boy. And was weird because when I actually heard the songs later I went wait what <laughs> it's like seeing a TV movie or a movie on television edited down and then all of a sudden you see it years later you're like oh I don't remember this holy crap 
Yeah. Now, one of the albums that got a sticker was uh, Zappa's Grammy Award-winning Jazz from Hell. <laughs> Probably due to the title, but there's also a song called G-Spot Tornado. Okay. Which, which it's an instrumental, just, just by the way. So there's no lyrics on there that's explicit. <laughs> but, yeah, as you said, this basically made all these, uh, you know, parental warning labels far more uh, far more enticing than uh, even like this quote unquote disturbing artwork could have ever done so now you had something that tells you straight on the cover that this album's going to contain something that's going to make your parents angry <laughs> you've we've got to have this now yeah i've noticed that whenever you put radiance on something there's a big fight about it but then all of a sudden once that rating system comes through creativity is unleashed because video games remember they went through that hell too and uh, after that, they were just allowed to have, you know, oh, you can have a mature game. Now you can pretty much do whatever you want in it. Exactly. It's the entire thing with that is just if you're going to make make something seem like forbidden fruit, uh, you better do a better good job of trying to entice people not to take it you're than right, right. To, uh, to put a big neon sign saying, buy me. <sighs> so that is the saga of the PMRC Senate hearing. Cool. Thank you. And yes, it's on YouTube, but it's broken up in multiple pieces. Back in the day when they could only do ten-minute segments, so you just have to watch in a playlist. Yeah. So someone, someone, someone listening who makes movies, get on doing another version of this. Yeah, I mean, it's been almost twenty years since that, anyway. So, or maybe a documentary. You know, that'd be a good idea, just to show you the effect of how that all worked out. Yeah, because just. Again, me reading those arguments are not that good. I'd like to hear John Denver say those words. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, so that's it for this episode. Check us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind. And uh, where can we catch you on Twitter and whatnots? I am on Twitter and Instagram under Musician, M-Y-U-Z-I-S-H-I-O-N. All right, that's it, everybody. Have a good night. You have a good one, people. <laughs>